President Biden laid a wreath at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier at Arlington National Cemetery today and paid tribute to Americans' fallen soldiers. He said that today is a day when pain and pride are mixed together and a bracing reminder of all we ask of our service members and their families. It's Memorial Day, Monday, May 30th, and this is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, we revisit a speech a World War II veteran gave at the State House in Boston in 2016. It was given by Larry Kirby, who fought in the Battle of Iwo Jima. 7,000 Marines died there. 22 were his friends. I visit them every day in my mind. I see each face one after another, and I hear his voice. I listen to him laugh, all 22 of them. These stories and much more still to come. It's 401. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. President Biden says gun violence has gotten so bad he believes there is bipartisan support for change. I know that it makes no sense to be able to purchase something that can fire up to 300 rounds. While senators from both parties are negotiating reforms, including expanded background checks and raising the legal age of purchase, there's no sign Republicans would go for an assault weapons ban. Last week in Uvalde, Texas, an 18-year-old used a legally purchased assault-style rifle to kill 21 people at an elementary school. On a weekend trip to Uvalde, Biden comforted bereaved families. And today, NPR's Ping Huang reports funeral services are getting underway for some of their loved ones. Members of the Texas Funeral Directors Association have sent caskets, embalmers, and hearses from across the state to Uvalde. Jimmy Lucas, the association's director, says they're doing anything they can to help support the city's two funeral homes. The town of Uvalde, um, funeral homes are a little smaller, and so certainly just not accustomed to the um, that, that amount of loss that fast. At one funeral home, a visitation is scheduled for 10-year-old Amory Joe Garza, an honor roll student who celebrated her birthday this month. Over the next two and a half weeks, the community will put 18 more children and two more teachers to rest. Ping Huang, NPR News. In Florida, police have arrested two young people for threatening to shoot up schools. In Tampa, an 18-year-old posted a social media message to that effect. And in Fort Myers, police arrested a 10-year-old in fifth grade accused of making a threat. In eastern Ukraine, Russian forces are working to encircle Severodonetsk, and there is word that after weeks of assault, they have entered the outskirts of the city. It is the largest Ukrainian-held city in the Luhansk region. Elsewhere, Moscow is pounding Ukraine with daily missile strikes. Today, two targeted a bridge on the Black Sea coast near Odessa. EU leaders meeting in Brussels are struggling to come to terms on a new round of sanctions against Russia. Terry Schultz reports they disagree on banning Russian oil imports. EU negotiators have been trying for weeks to reach the necessary unanimity on cutting off Russian oil imports. One of the measures included in this sixth round of sanctions against the Kremlin, which is holding up the entire package. Hungary is the leading opponent, but Bulgaria, the Czech Republic and Slovakia are also resisting a ban, saying they are dependent on supplies from Moscow. One compromise under discussion would be to avoid a heavy impact on these three countries by banning only oil transported by sea at this point and leaving discussion on pipelines for later. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky addresses the EU leaders by video conference to urge them to stop doing business with Russia. For NPR News, I'm Terry Schultz in Brussels. 
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. For those traveling on this Memorial Day, it can be slow going. There's an eight-mile backup exit in Cape Cod at the Sagamore Bridge, a one-mile backup at the Bourne Bridge. The Mass Pike eastbound is slow from Sturbridge to Charlton, and on 95 South, traffic is slow for 23 miles from York, Maine, to the Hampton, New Hampshire tolls. At Logan Airport, 18 flights have been canceled, nearly 100 delayed. Some airports are hit harder, including Miami, Denver, and Atlanta. Airlines say the cancellations are due to storms and the number of employees who are absent because of COVID-19. A Memorial Day ceremony will make its return to the Fenway neighborhood tonight. The city of Boston will hold a vigil in a park in Back Bay Fence for the first time in eight years. The city's Veteran Services Commissioner, Robert Santiago, says the site holds the memorials for World War II, the Vietnam War, and the Korean War, and encourages reflection. That is sacred ground for us here in the city of Boston. That memorial, with all those names that are on there, each name on those memorials has a story. You know, they have a family behind them as well. The city also honored the military fallen for Memorial Day by planting flags at the graves of more than 50,000 servicemen and women. The Massachusetts court system is releasing new data about an obscure part of the state's criminal justice system. The data focuses on clerks' magistrate hearings, where clerks decide behind closed doors whether to issue criminal charges. WBR's Ali Jarmanning has more. The data shows suspects with an attorney were 40 percent more likely to avoid charges. But unlike most criminal proceedings, poor people aren't entitled to a court-appointed lawyer at the hearings. Boston University criminal law professor David Rossman says that's unlikely to change. It's not a real winning campaign slogan for a politician to go to the voters and say, Let's apportion more of your tax money to lawyers for people who are accused of a crime as opposed to hiring more teachers or fixing the potholes in the roads. More than 21,000 criminal cases in 2020 started in the hearings. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Allie Jarmani. Some clouds roll in tonight. Temperatures back around 70 for a low. Then for tomorrow, mild in the morning, about 80 degrees by 8 o'clock. Should be down to about 60 later on in the day. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From NPR News, it's All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. It is Memorial Day, when the U.S. remembers those who have died in military service. Just after noon today was the traditional wreath-laying ceremony at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier at Arlington National Cemetery. Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, gave a brief speech. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin then spoke, and so did the Commander-in-Chief, President Joe Biden. America's beloved daughters and sons, who dared all, risked all, and gave all to preserve and defend an idea unlike any other in human history. The idea of the United States of America. 
Biden also acknowledged the sacrifice of military families and loved ones whose grief he described as a, quote, black hole in the center of your chest. Today is the first Memorial Day in 20 years that the U.S. is not at war in Afghanistan, but it's been less than a year since 13 service members were killed in Kabul during the final days of the U.S. evacuation. As the U.S. takes a national holiday, KPBS reporter Steve Walsh spoke with the mother of one of the Marines who died that day. Next week, I'll change the flowers out to the red, white, and blue. They just didn't have blue right now. A week before Memorial Day, I met with Cheryl Rex at Forest Lawn Cemetery in Orange County. We stand at the grave of her son, 20-year-old Lance Corporal Dylan Marola. I asked what she was doing last Memorial Day. Memorial Day is usually my birthday or my birthday weekend, so it's going to be even harder every year, not only for what we represent for Memorial Day, but you can't really celebrate after something like this. She comes through her son's grave five to six times a week, decorating the grave to fit the holiday. His marker is covered with angels, marine flags, and red, white, and blue streamers to fit Memorial Day. Sometimes I can sit here for six hours, eight hours, it just depends. That's all I have left. <laughs> I sit with him, talk with him. Rolla was killed on August 26th of last year, along with 12 other U.S. troops. Most were Marines from the 2nd Battalion 1st Marines stationed at Camp Pendleton. Their unit arrived 11 days earlier from Jordan, one of several rushed to Kabul in the last days of the American presence in Afghanistan. The things that, that they saw out there, the kids, the babies, the women, um, even grown men coming running to them, asking for their help and to save them. They were guarding the entrance to the airport as thousands of Afghans pressed their way into the Abbey Gate entrance, hoping to get on the last American flights out of Kabul. An ISIS-K bomb exploded, killing the service members and at least 170 Afghans. I pretty much knew that morning. Um, I woke up to the alert on my phone that there had been an explosion in Afghanistan, and that whole day was just horrible waiting not knowing three of the marines were from southern california people lined the streets as their caskets arrived for funerals in september my whole life is completely different i know i'll never be the same person i was dylan wanted to be a marine nearly all of his young life he joined right out of high school losing a child is something that nobody could ever in their the pain itself is something that I can't even explain. Her mother, Dylan's grandmother, Clorinda Matsuoka, says they've become even closer over the last year. She cries a lot more. <laughs> I didn't cry before. Um, it's hard to say because she's always been a very strong mom. Our whole family is pretty strong. Marines from her son's unit visit regularly from Pendleton. The ones who don't come to the house leave coins at the gravesite. Dimes mean they served together. Quarters mean they were with Dylan in Kabul. She has a jar filled with coins that she keeps in her room. The Marines come up. Um, they've been a big support to myself, my other children, and my family. That's basically it. I don't really go out in public much <laughs> right now. Um, family. Family is everything to us.
Rex's oldest son, Brandon, told her in January that at 24, he was joining the Marines. He's scheduled to graduate boot camp in San Diego, roughly one year after his brother died in Kabul. For NPR News, I'm Steve Walsh. Democrats control the House, Senate, and White House. Still, efforts to pass legislation fulfilling President Biden's climate change goals have stalled. That leaves a big gap between those goals and the amount of climate warming warming greenhouse gases the U.S. is on track to emit. NPR's Laura Benshoff reports. When legislation dubbed the Build Back Better Act died in Congress last year, the Biden administration's climate agenda suffered a big setback. But at a rally outside the Capitol building recently, Minnesota Senator Tina Smith spoke for many Democrats. We must act now. We need to address the root cause, and we must demonstrate our capacity to do real climate action. The Biden administration's goal to reduce U.S. emissions by 50 percent this decade is in line with what scientists say is necessary to avert the worst effects of climate change. Reached by phone later, Smith said many Democrats are hoping a party-line bill could deliver on that promise before they potentially lose their House majority in the midterms. I've not seen any serious Republican interest in that, which leads me to think that um, it's going to be quite difficult to get 10 Republicans, which is what it would take, to be able to do something in a bipartisan way. Meanwhile, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin has been talking to Republicans, and so far no climate deal has been announced. That's a problem because researchers predict that the U.S. needs to do more quickly if it's going to slash emissions sufficiently in the next eight years. A big infrastructure bill passed last year included some climate change elements, but John Larson with the Rhodium Group says it's not enough. It kind of makes other things possible, but it doesn't necessarily drive a lot of emission reductions on its own. That's because it funds things like power lines and developing new technologies, not implementing ones that already exist. A Rhodium Group study last year found that without a massive investment in renewable energy, like the more than half trillion dollar climate portion of the Build Back Better Act, 2030 climate goals are in jeopardy. Larson says the main investment tool is tax credits. When in solar tax credits, it's the carbon capture tax credits, it's clean fuels tax credits, all that stuff really adds up by 2030 to a meaningfully different and cleaner energy system. Such credits are where Democrats hope they can find consensus now, in particular ones that last for 10 years and can be used for any kind of zero emissions energy source. That last part is important because it's attractive to a lot of different kinds of energy providers and their allies in Congress. Lisa Jacobson, president of the Business Council for Sustainable Energy, says renewable power needs them to keep up momentum. You know, the market's stalling. And we, we need to provide some clarity and predictability, and this would be very helpful. At the same time, fossil fuel companies could use that same money for carbon capture, technology which reduces emissions from fuel-burning power plants. Without legislation, the Biden administration will be left to try to remake U.S. climate policy through regulations. But those rules are more vulnerable to legal challenges and political shifts. Here's John Larson again. And if... There is a new president that doesn't care about climate change in office in 2024. A lot of the things we just talked about might not be relevant anymore. Faced with that uncertainty, he says the coming months could be the last best opportunity to make federal climate change policy that fits the scale of the crisis itself. Laura Benshoff, NPR News.
Funeral services for the 19 students and two teachers killed in Uvalde, Texas last week start today. NPR's Karen Zamora reports on the preparations underway. It's quiet outside the flower patch except for the hum of air conditioning units cooling the building. There are signs on the front entrance and the side door that say no media allowed because a flood of journalists has made it difficult for the florists to do their job. They are working around the clock to create beautiful wreaths and arrangements made of colorful peonies, hydrangeas, and lilies. Oh goodness, our usual operations are... <laughs> we usually have like three to four people max. We've probably got about 12 people in there right now designing behind the scenes that y'all don't see. After hesitating a moment, okay, owner we'll Kelly Baker yeah. takes us inside the two-story building. To keep up with the demand, Baker says flower designers from all over have come to help. Oh, hi, I'm sorry, I was looking at the ladies, I didn't even see you. The back room is crammed but organized. There are walls of ribbons, greenery laid on workstations, and in one of those stations, florist Leslie Garza of San Antonio is adding the finishing touches on a pink and white standing spray arrangement. Oh, if I don't talk, it takes me about 25 minutes if I'm talking. She's an it could take me a longer time. Veronica Berger is the owner of Ars Flower Shop in Lacoste, Texas. She drove an hour to help. And florists are the only ones who know yeah. how to get through this. They, uh, nobody understands the dedication it takes to be a florist. I mean, it work. is it is very, very hard work. work, but it's very fulfilling. It is very fulfilling that we get to do something for these families. That we knew exactly what to do when this came. When when this tragedy happened, we knew exactly what we needed to be doing. Like many people here, owner Kelly Baker knew some of the victims. A high school classmate came in the other day, placing an order of flowers for her child's funeral. Their baby's favorite was sunflowers. As we, we start making these arrangements, we're just going to make sure and save sunflowers for this baby so that, you know, her family gets just a tiny bit of what she wanted or what she would have wanted for her service. Services begin tonight with the rosary and visitation for 10-year-olds Amory Joe Garza and Maite Juliana Rodriguez. And in the next few weeks, the community will put 17 other students and their two teachers to rest. Karen Zamora, NPR News, Uvalde, Texas. And this is All Things Considered. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up on All Things Considered, how the book Gone Girl still casts a long shadow over the psychological thriller market 10 years after it was first published. Also, tourists, one of the mainstays of the Cuban economy, are returning, but the recovery is slow and some say mismanaged. These stories and more coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Walnut Hill School for the Arts, championing creativity. Arts and academics for grades 9 to 12 apply for 2022-23. WalnutHillArts.org. If you're on the road this Memorial Day, you've got a lot of company coming back from Cape Cod. There's an eight-mile backup at the Sagamore Bridge, just a one-mile backup at the Bourne Bridge. And on 95 South, traffic is slow for about 23 miles from York, Maine, to the Hampton, New Hampshire tolls. Logan Airport officials are predicting most flights in and out of the airport will be nearly full this summer. Massport says the number of travelers at Logan likely will be up more than 35 percent over last year. Massport Aviation Director Ed Frenny says with more people flying, it's wise to consider alternatives to taking your car to the airport. I think we are going to have a real busy summer. I suggest people kind of pre-plan their way to the airport. Hopefully they'll use our Logan Express sites much better using an HOV mode to get here. Frenny says Logan will have a lot of demolition and construction going on this summertime. Crews are making improvements to roadways, expanding Terminal E, and building a connection between Terminals B and C. 
The forecast is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Margulies Peruzzi, designing buildings and inspired workplaces that help companies reach their goals, hybrid workplace strategy reports, and more at mparchitectsboston.com. And Merrimack Repertory Theater, presenting a toe-tapping, good-time musical, Woody Says, The Life and Music of Woody Guthrie, June 8th through 26th, mrt.org. Clotting up overnight tonight, lows about 70. Then for tomorrow, starting off around 80 degrees. Sunshine during the day, but by the afternoon, only around 60. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. From NPR News, it's All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly, and we're going to spend the next few minutes talking about a book that opens with these lines, When I think of my wife, I always think of her head. The shape of it, to begin with. The very first time I saw her, it was the back of the head I saw, and there was something lovely about it, the angles of it, like a shiny, hard corn kernel or a riverbed fossil. Recognize that? If so, you might have been like me, like millions of readers actually, back in the summer of 2012, who stayed up all night reading Gone Girl. Gillian Flynn's novel sold a bazillion copies. It upended the publishing industry. In an essay for Esquire, Maris Kreisman argues that to this day, Gone Girl casts a long shadow over the psychological thriller market. Kreisman also asks, 10 years on, does it hold up? Maris Kreisman, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. All right, for those who haven't read the book or who haven't read it in 10 years, very quick reminder of the characters in the plot. Yeah, it's a husband and wife, kind of a he said, she said. They each alternate chapters. And... Um, the wife goes missing. Why was it so revolutionary? I just remember halfway through the book, you get to this audacious plot twist that kind of blows up everything that came before. And it was shocking. The success of Gone Girl kind of kicked off this boom in books that were kind of uh, for fans of Gone Girl. And that kind of became a shorthand for a very specific kind of psychological thriller in which perhaps the heroine is more of an anti-heroine, uh, which is very exciting, who is likely to be unreliable. And readers are primed to try to decide what is really happening. The anti-heroine meaning you may not like her, but... Yes. You can't stop turning the pages to figure out what happens here. You are totally invested in her. Absolutely. She is not a perfect victim, nor is she a perfect perpetrator, if, if that's what the case may be. So here we are a decade on. How long had it been since you read Gone Girl? Had it been a decade since you'd picked it up? It had been more than a decade. And I had, um, of course, seen the movie as well that came out in 2014. But I was nervous going back. <laughs> and I'm happy to tell you that it really does hold up on so many different levels. The plotting and the pacing are spectacular. The writing in EW 
Stephen King would say that Flynn's prose is Franzen-like. Jonathan Franzen, the novelist, yeah. High praise. Any bits that don't hold up? I think the only thing, and it's maybe one of the most famous speeches from the book, doesn't hold up, and that's the cool girl theory. This is Amy's theory. Yeah, explain it. Yes. She thinks that women have to constantly pretend to be more laid back and broy than they actually are in order to impress men. And yes, that's still true. But wow, does that feeling feel quaint in a world after grab them by the, you know what, and Mm -hmm. the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh. And so I I think there's, I I hope Amy is just the beginning. There's so much more room for well-rounded anti-heroines in commercial literature. I will look forward to reading those. And I'm happy to report it had been a decade since I picked it up so long that I'd forgotten all the big, <laughs> the big audacious <laughs> plot twist in the middle of the book. And I started rereading over the weekend and was hooked once again, staying up into the wee hours. Absolutely. We've been speaking with Maris Kreisman. Her essay for Esquire magazine is headlined, The Legacy of Gone Girl. Thank you. Thank you. This is NPR News. Cuba is hoping more tourists will visit after a lengthy pandemic shutdown. Tourism is vital to the communist country's economy, which is the worst it's been in decades. It's taken a beating from the pandemic and from Trump-era sanctions. Last week, the Biden administration rolled back some restrictions for U.S. travelers, but as NPR's Kerry Kahn reports, it's unclear if Cuba will get the number of visitors it needs. There is a trickle of tourists heading back to Havana, although nothing like the more than four million a year before the pandemic. Uh, Michel, Michael. Michael, Michel. <laughs> Despite the language barrier, Michel Clerey from France says everyone in his small group is enjoying the sights, especially the long line of classic 1950s era cars lined up along the Grand Paseo Boulevard in Old Havana. Unfortunately, it's been a dismal day for 36-year-old Eduardo Sedeno. He hasn't had one rider in his shiny red 1956 Buick convertible. It's the low season for sure, he says, but even the cooler winter months weren't so great. Many say Cuba missed out on a recuperating Caribbean market by waiting until late November to reopen its borders and drop strict COVID requirements. Cuba is única. 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 This slick new video touts Cuba's uniqueness, says Pilar Alvarez Ace. She's with the tourism ministry that's hoping to lure at least 2.5 million visitors this year. Less than half a million have come so far. I think it's a very good chance and we are very optimistic about it. Experiencing one of its worst economic crises in decades, Cuba needs the cash. It can't buy essential imports, including most food and oil, without foreign currency. Inflation has skyrocketed and Cubans spend hours every day waiting in lines for food and gas. Yet construction, like at this huge hotel set to be the biggest on the island, goes on. The government continued its aggressive building spree even through the pandemic. 
This luxury hotel I'm standing in front of right now is called the Grand Aston Havana. It recently just had its grand opening and it's stunning. It has these two tall white towers with hundreds of rooms, many of them looking out over the ocean. The problem, it's practically empty. We keep on building the future and the future is for our people. Pilar Alvarez Ace of the Tourism Ministry defends the controversial construction as necessary for Cuba's long-term well-being. But not all neighbors of the luxury hotel agree. That's where the princes live, says 52-year-old Elias Despine Rodriguez, pointing at the huge white hotel. Here's where the beggars reside, says Despine, pointing to his crumbling apartment across the street. We thought that when they built the hotel, they'd fix our building too, he says, but they didn't. Growing inequality has spurred resentment and sparked rare protests that erupted last July. Despini stands next to his 1947 classic Harley-Davidson motorcycle with a for sale sign on it. Like record numbers of Cubans today, he's trying to get enough cash to leave. He can't find work and has given up hope that even if tourists do come back, the economy would improve for him. Kerry Khan, NPR News, Havana. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Sawyer Free Library 2025 Foundation, transforming Gloucester and the North Shore with the renovation and expansion of Cape Ann's oldest public library, a philanthropic mission to elevate a lifeline of services for all people, Gloucester's new net-zero hub of equity, connection, and advancement. Learn more at SawyerFree2025.org. And the MassArt Art Museum, designing motherhood, explores the arc of human reproduction through art and design. Learn more at maam.massart.edu. Hi, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. One of my roles at All Things Considered is to make sure that the right questions get asked. And when a guest tries to avoid answering a question, it's my job to ask it again, nicely. It's why you count on NPR for your news. We count on you too. And believe it or not, your old car can help us keep our coverage strong. Donate your car today. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org slash cars. Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. Heavy fighting continues in the Donbass region of eastern Ukraine. But as NPR's Nathan Rott reports, Russia's broader assault on the country continues with daily missile strikes. A pair of missile strikes early Monday morning targeted a bridge on the Black Sea coast southwest of Odessa. It's at least the fourth time Russia has targeted the bridge, which is one of two points connecting a broad region known as Bessarabia to the rest of the country. Local officials won't say if the bridge is still passable for security reasons, but the shockwave of the morning strikes could be felt about 10 miles away. There are concerns in this southwest part of Ukraine that Russia is trying to cut it off from the rest of the country, while most attention is focused on the east. Nathan Rapp, NPR News, Southern Ukraine. Georgia's race for Secretary of State is shaping up to be one of the most expensive contests of its kind on record in the U.S. NPR's Miles Park says a new report reveals how the race for this lower-profile office has changed nationwide since the 2020 presidential election. 
Secretary of State used to be an under-the-radar position, where candidates, even in swing states, needed to raise less than a million dollars to be competitive. With 2020 election denial on the ballot across the country, the stakes have changed. The Brennan Center for Justice has been tracking money flowing into these races all year, and the numbers even so far are staggering. Across six battleground states, candidates for these positions have raised more than $13 million. That's more than two and a half times what they'd raised by this same time in 2018, and more than five times what was raised in 2014. Georgia's race has already topped $6 million alone. In 2014, that number was around $200,000 at the same point. Miles Parks, NPR News. And you're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. It's a slow return trip home for travelers on the roads leaving Cape Cod. There's now a six-mile backup approaching the Sagamore Bridge, a one-mile backup at the Bourne Bridge. It's also slow going on Route 3 northbound in Plymouth and in pockets from Duxbury to Weymouth. On 95 South, there's 18 miles of slow traffic from York, Maine to the Hampton, New Hampshire tolls. The mass turnpike eastbound is also jammed from Sturbridge to Charlton. Staffing shortages are forcing the Steamship Authority to cancel a quarter of tonight's ferry trips between Martha's Vineyard and Cape Cod. The authority says that's because a crew member called in sick and because overall staffing is tight. They had canceled five trips between the Vineyard, uh, Vineyard Haven and Woods Hole. It says it's rebooking passengers on other ferries. Several state parks and beaches across Massachusetts were closed off today to new visitors after they quickly reached full capacity. The Department of Conservation and Recreation says Walden Pond, Douglas State Forest, Ashland State Park, and Kachichuit State Park reached capacity by midday. Stephanie Cooper is the department's acting commissioner. It's, it's, not, it's not unusual. Places like Lake Kachichuit and, and Walden Pond do pretty regularly reach capacity when we're you know in the height of the recreation season, which we've We've now just just ushered in this weekend. Cooper says you can check a new dashboard on the Conservation and Recreation Department's website before you leave home to see if your favorite park is closed. On this Memorial Day, the state has a new way to remember those who have died in military service to the nation. Last week, Massachusetts began to offer a Medal of Liberty license plate. You can get a free plate for your vehicle if you had a family member in the military who died in action or as a result of combat wounds. The state's Registrar of Motor Vehicles is Colleen Ogilvie. It's very important to honor the people who have protected our country in the past, and through those brave individuals, we continue to um, have the freedoms we have today. The plate is free of charge. It's 435. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA with A Place for Me, celebrating a new generation of artists creating vibrant figurative paintings, icaboston.org. Sunny and lovely this Memorial Day. Clouds roll in tonight. Temperatures pull back to about 70 for a low. Tomorrow's sunny and distinctly cooler. Should reach 80 in the morning, then sink to about 60 by the afternoon. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Ion Television Network, LeVar Burton hosts the Scripps National Spelling Bee Finals live, Thursday, June 2nd at 8 p.m. Eastern on Ion. Learn more at spellingbee.com. From Avast, a global cybersecurity company with more than 435 million users, Avast is dedicated to helping people take control of their safety and privacy online. Learn more at avast.com. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation.
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Miguel Macias gets a call from his mother in Spain every few weeks. Hello. Hello, ma'am. They talk about the family, whatever is happening in her life. And some years ago, Miguel, who is a senior producer for All Things Considered, started a documentary project, and he asked his mother questions he had never asked her before. His mother says that she never quite believed that Miguel had left Spain for good. That no one ever thinks that their son is not going to come back when they leave. She says she even feels like crying just talking about it. Today, Miguel's mother feels that the United States is as much Miguel's homeland as Spain and Seville. Miguel has lived here for over two decades, and his story of migration is in some ways unique, but also similar to that of many immigrants. Over the years, he has wondered time and time again about his decision to leave his country and whether to return one day. And that brings up other questions for him about the decisions we make in life and how to live with those choices. Miguel Macias is going to take it from here. The first time I ever visited the U.S. was in 1991, when I was 15 years old. My parents signed me up for one of those summer programs to learn English. My father had become disabled after he had a stroke a few years before. Yeah, I remember you couldn't look at him at the face. My sister, Beatriz, remembers the years after my father's stroke. When we were having lunch as teenagers, I don't know if you felt abandoned in some way by him. I barely remember anything about my father before he had the stroke. My mother always tells me that I was really close to him. He was old-fashioned, obsessed with work and productivity. But after the stroke, my relationship with him could not have been worse. I felt you separated from, I don't know if the family or me. It was too hard for you, so you kind of got away from the whole family. During those years, the United States became my escape. So when I decided that I wanted to go live somewhere else, the U.S. seemed like the logical place for me to go. There are two kinds of immigrants. Heck, there are probably 500 kinds of immigrants. But let's just say for now that there are two kinds. The ones who don't look back and the ones who spend their lives looking back. I've done a bit of both. I've ordered flamenco CDs from Brooklyn. I've held on to my friendships in Spain for decades. I've bought a house in Los Angeles. I've learned how to drive in New York. I've worked myself to the ground day after day. I've felt at home in Brooklyn. I've gone back home for Christmas to Spain every single year. And through the years, through the decades, I've asked myself time after time, where should I be? What version of myself is more real? Should I stop looking back? Or should I simply go back to where I'm from once and for all? My initial plan was not necessarily to stay in the United States permanently. I wanted to study radio production for a year, maybe two. But in 2004, after graduating from Brooklyn College, I was offered a job in public radio, and I couldn't turn it down. I was in the U.S. to accomplish things. And I am, by all means, a privileged immigrant. I came to the U.S. because I wanted to. I was able to study, but this job seemed like my first success. Then, not long after I started my job as a radio producer, I met Julia. Her name is not actually Julia, but we'll call her that. We fell in love. 
We got married. Julia taught me so many of the things I know about this country. She made me a football fan, American football, that is. We could go to the bar on Sundays, eat wings, drink beer, and cheer for the Steelers. That was the time that I was the farthest away from Seville, but I could still go back for Christmas every year. On one hand, I have this like, this constant need to make decisions to be happier. This is a recording from a conversation I had with my friend Lisa in 2021. We were talking about happiness, my favorite topic. And on the other hand, I have this constant fear that no matter what I do, I will never be happy. What do you think it means to be happy? Hmm. For me, being happy means to not suffer. And here is where this story gets complicated. Because my father's illness is not the only thing that pushed me to leave Spain. I have suffered from chronic depression since I was a teenager. When I moved to the US, I had a chance to develop a different persona. I only told my closest friends about my depression. And even with people I told, I never showed them my suffering. There are two interesting things about suffering. One is that you know you can survive it. So when something difficult actually happens, it might not even make you that sad. After all, suffering for a reason is much easier than suffering for no reason. The other interesting thing is that you wanted to stop, and so you're always wondering what other life could make you happier. A different job, a different city, buying something, selling something, meeting someone, breaking up with someone. In 2012, Julia and I separated. I thought I would be okay, but I wasn't, because it touched the core of my identity in this country. I felt uprooted, out of place, lost. Migrating, just like depression, is not a single event. It happens every day when you get up. It happens every time you meet someone and they notice your accent. Every occasion someone makes an old cultural reference and you don't get it. It happens every time something important happens back at home and you're not there for that. A birthday, a death, a celebration, a sickness, good news, bad news, no news just life, and you're not there for any of it. And then, as I kept struggling with my questions about my future and where to be, something happened. When I met you, I don't know, Miguel, because what do I say? How American you seem to me when I met you? Well, when I met Miguel, Miguel was a very strange American. I met Maria in Seville. A friend introduced us outside of a bar. People love to hang out with friends outside of bars in Seville. It didn't take long for Maria to realize that there was Miguel in Spain and Miguel in the US. I really think that when I first noticed your personality change, when I realized you went from an Spanish to an American way of being, was uh, in the last part of our trip to the United States. When we arrived in New York, you became much more serious, you looked down more, walked faster, talked to me less. Maria always tells me that I also laugh more in Spain. And meeting Maria started a period of my life where I would use every opportunity I had to visit. And I could have gone back permanently during those years, actually, but I was afraid afraid that years of hard work could evaporate without a trace if I went back. It's an immigrant's worst nightmare, going back with nothing to show for.
Years went by. Maria and I continued our relationship in the distance with plenty of uncertainty about the future. Also daily voice messages to always be with each other. Hola, mi vida. Buenos días. That's a recording from April 10th, 2020. Maria was worried about me that morning. Yo toda mañana pensando en ti. It was the height of the pandemic and I was in Brooklyn. My mother had called me a few days earlier to let me know that my father had tested positive. We left it off. My father has survived a devastating stroke, decades of living under the risk of dying from another stroke any day. COVID could do nothing to him. On April 9th, 2020, my mother called me to give me the news. My father died of COVID alone in his nursery home in Seville. I cried on the phone, took the rest of the day off, went back to work the next morning. After all, suffering for a reason is much easier than suffering for no reason. I've been running away from the legacy of my father all my life. That constant need to accomplish things in the US to one day earn the right to go back. But the farther I get, the more elusive that notion of success becomes. And the opposite of success is failure. El tema, what do you mean by el tema? <laughs> well, the topic. El tema de. I'm talking about the subject of. ¿Cuál es tu plan? Mm. What's your plan? Recently, Maria visited me in DC for a week. That's where I'm based now. We start to talk about our future and whether I could finally make a decision to go back to Spain to be together. This is an old conversation. You know that. And you have never asked me to come live with you directly. Is this a project of yours in which we're going to see how long I can last by your side? And what will life be like? Working, just working for you, and working and waiting for me? Is that what you want? didn't send you the book, Wherever You Go, There You Are. <laughs> I didn't insist that you read it. I didn't read it, no. This is my friend Lisa in that 2020 phone conversation. She's talking about the book by John Kabat-Zinn. I don't think it's untrue that somebody can be happier in a certain environment than in another. But I think at the core, simply relocating doesn't erase whatever fundamental issues or needs or demons or angels or whatever in us. Recently, another friend of mine sent me a message. She's also an immigrant to the US. She also struggles with depression. She was struggling with the same questions I deal with. Where is our place in the world? Why are we putting ourselves through all this suffering, going back and forth? And the only advice I could give her is, try to decide where you want to be in the future. And even if you don't know when that will happen, at least you'll know that you made a decision. And at that moment, I realized that I had made my own decision. Maybe it's my age, I'm 46 now. Maybe it's the years apart from Maria, or maybe it's my father's passing. But all of those things pushed me to make some decisions, to stop running away from my problems. I recently bought an old house in Seville to tear it down and build a new home. I also asked Maria to marry me. I finally know where my place in the world is. And even though I don't have a set date or a one-way plane ticket, 
I know I will come back to Spain to finally rest, to leave for the things that matter. That was NPR senior producer Miguel Macias. This segment was an adaptation of Limbo, an hour-long audio documentary originally aired on Latino USA. You can find the link on our website or go to latinousa.org. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, Memorial Day remembrances from a Massachusetts Marine who survived the Battle of Iwo Jima in World War II, coming up next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed money at findmassmoney.com. And Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, where the Love Spring event is underway, featuring the all-wheel drive Subaru Crosstrek, citysidesubaru.com. Red Sox are in the midst of their seven-game homestand. Tonight, they finish up their series with the Orioles. It'll be Rich Hill taking the mound at 7-10 at Fenway. Tyler Wells for Baltimore. The series is tied at two wins each. In the forecast overnight tonight, clouding up, falling to about 70 degrees for a low. And then for tomorrow, should reach 80 during the morning commute, but then head downward, falling to 60 for the majority of the day tomorrow. Lots of sunshine. In the Boston area right now, 86 degrees at 449. WBUR supporters include summer term at Boston University. Advance your studies with more than 700 courses in over 70 subjects, ranging from business, math, and sciences to humanities, languages, communication, and more. For summer term dates and to register, visit bu.edu summer. And Boston Ballet presenting Swan Lake, an iconic and beloved ballet, live May 26th through June 5th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. Applying for a job or buying a gun, which one has more hurdles? For many jobs uh, that require a background check, that background check is facilitated by a fingerprint. I'm Kai Rizdal. Background checks, loopholes, and some overdue updates next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Simple, everyday essentials, things like food, fuel, electricity, are no longer affordable for most of Lebanon's middle class, and the value of the country's currency has dropped by 90%. NPR's Arzu Razvani reports on how the challenges playing out in the life of one Lebanese mother and her family. It's a Sunday morning, and 44-year-old Rania Awada is running her weekend errands. Here we arrived to a supermarket. Awada is a preschool teacher here in Beirut. Her husband works for the post office. And together with their three daughters, they used to live a very comfortable middle-class life. We used to go shopping, to travel, and uh, to buy many things. Now That all started to change a few years ago. Lebanon's government and banking sector spent years mismanaging the country's cash reserves, and the financial system finally collapsed in 2019. Awada's $1,200 monthly paycheck is now worth about $120, and she has to make it stretch. Here at the supermarket, she picks up a couple of kiwis, a fruit her youngest daughter loves, but she eventually puts them back. They're expensive, now I can't buy. I have to see the meat and the chicken. She pays for a bag of onions and makes her way to the butcher. These days, Sunday suppers aren't what they used to be. See, I used to buy 
a chicken before. A whole chicken. And now look what I am buying. Two chicken breasts for her family of five. As we walk around the block, Awada tells me about the side hustle she recently started, a collection of desserts she sells from home, and how she's encouraging her daughters to leave Lebanon for a better life abroad. She then stops at the spice store. This is, we call it mlukhiye, green leaves. We cook it with the chicken. It's super yummy. There are tubs of dried herbs, jars of various legumes and pickled vegetables. She points to a bucket of white powder. See, and we used to get milk. Now we're buying milk like this, powder milk. It's cheaper this way, but it also lasts longer. Power outages here can drag on for hours, sometimes days, and milk spoils fast. But it's another essential pantry item that's impossible to find. Is this flour or no? Yeah, uh, Corn flour. The owner of this shop, Bilal Tariri, says customers can't buy flour anymore. There's a shortage. What's left in the country is reserved just for bakeries. But when Awada goes to pick up some bread just around the corner, that's all gone too. I change the prices on hourly basis. Some shops, they do it on a daily basis. So Mazen Amil is the owner of that breadless bakery and market. He updates prices regularly to keep pace with the exchange rate, which fluctuates multiple times a day. Other shopkeepers, he says, simply mark prices way up every day to account for the climbing inflation. But who's, gonna, who's being affected by that? The customers. They are paying more than what the real value of the item. On her way home, Awada makes a final stop. I have type 2 diabetes. I take a medicine, it's called Galvismet. She goes into the pharmacy to ask for it, and no luck. I can't find my medicine. This is your diabetes medicine yes. you cannot find? No. So what do you do in this case? I have to take one pill instead of two pills until they get it to me. And this is an important medicine. Hello? As Rania makes her way back home, her husband calls. I'm telling him about the medicine. Hey. He said, oh, it's okay, don't worry, we'll look for, for other pharmacies. She seems a little defeated by the day. Her shopping bag light, her burdens heavy. So as you can see, it's not easy to live in Lebanon. It's so hard. Arizu Rezvani, NPR News, Beirut. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. On this Memorial Day, Americans are asked to remember the men and women in the U.S. military who fought and died for their country. Across Massachusetts, there were parades, wreath layings, and speeches by veterans. Governor Charlie Baker spoke at the Puerto Rican Veterans Memorial in the south end of Boston, and he attended a ceremony at the Veterans Cemetery in Winchenden. There is one particular veteran of World War II whose speech at the State House six years ago we remember vividly. The speaker was 91-year-old Larry Kirby of Danvers. The occasion was Iwo Jima Day. It marks the start of a fierce 36-day battle in 1945 on the Japanese island, and it was a turning point in the war. Larry Kirby was among the 110,000 Marines who fought on Iwo Jima, we want to share his address once again from 2016 as he remembered those who made the ultimate sacrifice. Close to 7,000 Marines were killed on Iwo Jima. And 22 of those Marines were my very, very close friends. I visit them every day in my mind. I 
I look at their faces, I see each face one after another, and I, I hear his voice, I listen to him laugh, and I, I think of something unique in his face. It's like, like swiping photographs on your iPad, all 22 of them. And I see uh, Billy Jordan, who had a, a, a mole right under his left eye, a little tiny one. And then I see my friend Dwayne Cook, whose face was a mass of freckles. And uh, Lou Holcomb. Earlier, a mortar had exploded and, and the concussion slammed Lou to the deck and his mouth slammed against the bolt cover of his M1 and he knocked a piece of his tooth out. When I see Lou in my mind, I see that chipped tooth grin and I will never forget them. When a young man is killed in an automobile crash, we say that he, he lost his life. When a young man is killed in combat, we say that he gave his life. It's, it's just a different verb, but the difference is tremendous. Because the, the boy in the car, when he crawled out of bed that morning, he had no idea what was waiting for him. But the young boys that I knew and that we served with, when they climbed down the cargo net and got into that landing craft to go to the beach, they knew there was a very good chance that they would die, and they still did it. They willingly gave it. And I, I think of what they gave. They, they gave, for example, that, that excitement that you, uh, you get the first day that you go to college or start a new career. They gave up that unbelievable feeling of happiness to a young man when he falls in love. And, and they, they gave up that marvelous, giddy excitement you have when you dance with your bride at your wedding. And then I realized that they gave up that wonderful feeling of wonder when you hold in your arms your newborn child. All those young boys didn't just die. They gave their lives. I'm almost 92 years old, and they're still 18, 19, or 20. And that broad span of time is filled with the years they never lived. And those years make up the, the lives that they gave to you and to me so that we can live our lives in freedom. And I will forever be in their debt. Thank you. Larry Kirby is a Marine veteran of the Battle for Iwo Jima in World War II. He gave that speech in 2016 at the Massachusetts State House and shared parts of the story again today in a ceremony in Salem. Support for NPR comes from this station and from USPS, serving every address in the country, more than 160 million nationwide. USPS, delivering for America. Learn more at usps.com slash delivering. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE.
and from Aspiration, a digital banking alternative designed for people who care about the environment. Customers can plant a tree with every swipe of their debit card to offset their carbon footprint. Aspiration.com green. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE SIPC. I'm here now host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. President Biden today honors America's fallen service members and pays tribute to those he said dared all, risked all, and gave all to preserve and defend an idea unlike any other in human history, the idea of the United States of America. It's Memorial Day, Monday, May 30th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, the U.S. Supreme Court may soon rule on a case that could end the nationwide right to abortion. Americans in many states have concerns about what will happen if the court does overturn Roe versus Wade. How will treatment for miscarriage be impacted? And will women have to prove that their miscarriages are accidents? Answers to listener questions about likely changes to abortion law in the U.S. coming up. Also, Bob Mondello's selective preview of summer movies. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden says he will keep pushing for changes to gun laws after the mass shooting in Uvalde, Texas. As NPR's Tamara Keith reports, Biden says he hasn't yet spoken with Senate Republicans whose votes would be needed. President Biden says there's no rational basis in hunting or self-defense for the sorts of high-caliber weapons used in the school shooting in Uvalde. And he wants Congress to pass an assault weapons ban. I can do the things I've done, and any executive action I can take, I'll continue to take. But I can't outlaw a weapon. I can't you know, change the background check. I can't do that. Biden says he doesn't know what Senate Republicans would support because he hasn't spoken to them yet. But there is no indication Republicans would go for an assault weapons ban. There are preliminary discussions about a red flag law to temporarily take weapons from someone deemed to be a danger to themselves or others, or to expand background checks. Tamara Keith, NPR News. The president and first lady attended a mass in Uvalde, Texas yesterday, paying tribute to those who lost their lives in last week's school shooting. The Justice Department, meanwhile, says it will review law enforcement's response to the shooting at the request of that city's mayor. Stella Chavez is a reporter with KERA in Dallas. She is in Uvalde and says people are wondering why it was so easy for 18-year-old Salvador Ramos to get a high-powered weapon. Those are the questions people have is like, could more have been done to prevent him from going out and buying a gun and doing all of these things? Um, and, And maybe if that had happened, perhaps, you know, this awful incident wouldn't have happened. Reporter Stella Chavez in Uvalde, Texas, 19 children and two adults died in the shooting. Israel is warning its citizens against visiting 
Turkey over fears Iran could try to attack them to avenge the recent assassination of a top Iranian officer. NPR's Daniel Estrin reports from Tel Aviv. Israel was reportedly behind the killing of a senior Revolutionary Guards officer in Iran last week. Now Israel's National Security Council is warning Iran may try to attack Israelis in countries bordering Iran and around the world. Israel singled out Turkey, a popular vacation destination, as carrying high risk for Israelis. Israel and Iran are waging a shadow war. Israel's military is preparing for a potential attack on Iranian nuclear facilities in the future. On Monday, Israel's military said it began a first-of-its-kind training exercise in Cyprus to simulate operations, quote, deep inside enemy territory, training how to adapt to unfamiliar territory. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Authorities in Shanghai say they'll be lifting the city's coronavirus lockdown from midnight on starting Wednesday in a move that will allow private cars back on the roads and people move freely in and out of low-risk housing compounds. U.S. markets are closed today. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. It's a long ride home from Memorial Day getaways. There's an eight-mile backup exit in Cape Cod at the Sagamore Bridge, a one-mile delay at the Bourne Bridge. On 95 southbound, there's now a 20-mile slowdown from York, Maine, to the Hampton, New Hampshire tolls, and the Mass Turnpike eastbound is jammed from Sturbridge to Charlton around I-84. Airlines nationwide have canceled more than 1,500 flights today due to weather, as well as crew members who are out because of COVID. At Logan, nearly 20 flights have been canceled today. More than 120 have been delayed. Governor Charlie Baker marked Memorial Day by visiting the Massachusetts Veterans Memorial Cemetery in Winchenden this morning. There, he told a crowd of veterans, Gold Star families, and community leaders that the service and sacrifice of the military fallen will never be forgotten, and we are forever grateful, he said, for their acts of courage and valor. Local veteran services officers also read a Memorial Day proclamation from the governor at ceremonies in cities and towns across the Commonwealth. Native American tribes in Massachusetts are banding together to tackle incidents of domestic violence and sexual assault. They're launching an organization called Kinship Heals. WBR's Vanessa Ochovio has more. The group wants to build a regional network of services for Native people. Jennifer Randolph is the executive director of the new organization, and a member of the Wampanoag tribe of Gayhedaquina on Martha's Vineyard. She realized the need for tribes to work together when a 17-year-old girl from a neighboring tribe went missing and was later found dead. All this time I had been working on domestic violence sexual assault. So my own community, my own tribe, and right across the water in Mashpee, this was happening. And I had done nothing and hadn't been working with them at all. Kinship Heals plans to provide support groups and healing circles that incorporate traditional practices like weaving and sweat lodges. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Vanessa Ochavillo. 88 degrees now. This should be as high as it gets all week, falling to about 70 overnight tonight. Lots of clouds around. Tomorrow should reach nearly 80 for the, in time for the morning commute, then head downward, falling to 60 for the majority of the day. Sunshine tomorrow. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 5.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by LifeLock by Norton, reminding consumers that sensitive info sent online can lead to identity theft. Learn more at LifeLock.com NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. A few years ago, Erica Parr had an unexpected experience that she will never forget. I experienced a miscarriage when I was 27, a few months after um, I married my husband, and nobody expects to lose a pregnancy. And I consider myself fairly, like, educated and, like, body literate. 
Parr is 30 years old now. She's more than halfway through another pregnancy. And when she heard about the leaked Supreme Court draft opinion that could overturn the right to an abortion in the U.S., The news has brought up a lot of personal feelings for me. Parr's religious beliefs as an Orthodox Christian weigh heavily on her feelings about abortion. And our church definitely holds like strong sanctity of life values, and that is something that I personally align myself with. But she lives in Tennessee, one of 13 states that would immediately ban abortion if the Supreme Court overturns Roe. In many cases, the procedures and medications that women need after a miscarriage are the same as those used for abortion. And Parr is thinking a lot about that. There are actual like life and death moments where like a matter of hours makes a huge difference in situations in which, I don't know, legal considerations seem like they shouldn't be at the forefront of anyone's mind when they're making decisions about their own health care. Her feelings are prompting questions, so she wrote to NPR, as did a lot of you, who asked us about what will happen if the justices overturn Roe versus Wade. You sent us so many good questions that we're going to answer them in a couple of segments. Today, we'll focus on health policy and medicine. Our experts with the answers are NPR health policy correspondent Selena Simmons-Duffin and Dr. Kristen Brandy, an OBGYN and family planning doctor who's also the board chair for Physicians for Reproductive Health. Good to have you both here. Hi, Ari. Glad to be here. And before we start, I do want to let listeners know that we are going to have a frank discussion about some difficult topics that might not be appropriate for all listeners. So to begin, if the Supreme Court lets states make decisions about abortion rights access, the rules are going to vary from one place to another. And some states have passed laws that prohibit abortion, except in cases where the life of the mother is threatened. Keston Smith in Indiana wanted to know more about that standard. Here's his question. What medical conditions definitely threaten the life of the mother and medically would require a procedure that threatens the life of the mother or child. It seems like that question of whether uh, somebody will die from a pregnancy is rarely black and white. So, Selena, how will this be determined? Yeah, you're right. I mean, the, the exemptions written into these laws often talk about medical emergencies. So not just a chance that, you know, if your condition that could turn into a life-threatening condition um, does so, you're going to be in, in trouble. Um, but, like, there's something happening right now and you need emergency treatment and that treatment might involve um, ending a pregnancy. That seems like a much higher standard than you are likely to die from this. Yeah. And I should say that CDC tracks pregnancy deaths and they're about 700 a year. Um, A third of them are from heart disease and stroke. But really what these laws I think are trying to carve out is the really most urgent medical emergency. And the physicians that I've talked to really talk about when water breaks way too early in pregnancy. There's actually a famous case of when this happened. Um, Dr. Savita Halapanavar, she was a dentist in Ireland, 17 weeks into her pregnancy. This was 10 years ago. She ended up not being able to have an abortion, even though her pregnancy was not going to continue. She got an infection and died. And that case spurred the country of Ireland to change their abortion laws. Um, And I should say NPR has reported of similar cases that are happening now in Texas, which has a six-week abortion restriction in place right now. Okay, our next question comes from an obstetrician in Cleveland, Ohio. That's a state where lawmakers are considering several bills to restrict abortion, including a trigger law should Roe fall. Um, Here's what Dr. Emily Hamburg Shields wants to know. In states that post-Roe do not allow for termination of pregnancy for lethal fetal anomalies, 
what are the implications for parents of fetuses and newborns who have issues that are not compatible with light? Lethal fetal anomalies. So Dr. Kristen Brandy, to put this in very stark terms, under some of these state laws, could people be compelled to carry a pregnancy to term even if it is clear that the fetus will not survive outside of the womb? Unfortunately, the answer to that could be yes. Um, when I have a patient that is facing that outcome, I want to talk to them about their options and make sure that they can decide if and when and how to end that pregnancy. According to these abortion bans, there's not a lot of language that allows for abortion in the cases of lethal fetal anomalies. People that are in states where abortion is restricted likely will have to continue those pregnancies to term. And they would deliver how they normally would deliver, either by a natural birth, potentially even a C-section. Um, and they likely wouldn't be able to have the palliative care system support them in an outcome that would help them, you know, grieve the potential loss of this child. So it's really depressing to think about how devastating that diagnosis is to patients and how they won't be able to choose what happens to that pregnancy afterward. All right. Erica Parr, who we heard from at the beginning of this segment, had this question as well. How will treatment for miscarriage be impacted? What conversations should I be having now with my OB? And will women have to prove that their miscarriages are accidents? Selena, do you know the answer to that question? Yeah, I think that the answer is definitely miscarriage care is going to be impacted. It already is happening in Texas. And the reason is that a lot of times people think about miscarriage as something that's spontaneous, that somebody has no control over, and that can be true, but it can also be something that people have to make decisions about. And the standard of care for treating a miscarriage is the same as the standard of care for providing an abortion. And the way that that can play out is if somebody has a miscarriage and they need to take medication to empty the uterus so that, you know, they're not at risk of infection, um, that same medication is what's used for medication abortion. And we're hearing a lot of reports of pharmacists in Texas not filling those prescriptions for people who are suffering miscarriages. Um, and, you know, so I think that the other question that she had about having to prove it. No, in the laws, there's nothing that says if there's a miscarriage, somebody has to prove it. But there are reports. A, a woman wrote a thread on Twitter about how she had a miscarriage recently in Texas and was grilled by her doctor about when medications she might have taken or how she might have caused that miscarriage to happen. We got a question from a listener who asked us not to use his name because he works for a large hospital system in the South, and he is in one of the states with a trigger law that would outlaw most abortions after a Supreme Court ruling that overturned Roe. So he wants to know, are hospitals ready for this change? Many rural areas in southern states that did not expand Medicaid lost hospitals. Are there enough beds for labor and delivery, NICU beds? Will we see rising medical care and insurance costs because of the rise of charity care for maternity services? Dr. Brandy, what impact will this have on hospitals? I think that's a really important question. I honestly am concerned about whether the healthcare system is ready to face the increasing number of patients that are becoming to our doors that we're going to need labor and delivery care because they weren't able to access abortion care. Um, rural areas, even before COVID, were facing lots of closures of hospitals and particularly labor and delivery wards. People were already traveling long distances to get all types of care. And women's health providers were leaving those areas. Imagine now when we double or triple the number of deliveries that are happening in those communities. 
Okay, Elaine Foe from Greeley, Colorado, has this question about in vitro fertilization or IVF. How will IVF be affected if abortion is banned? Will IVF be banned? Selena, what impact could laws banning abortion have on IVF? Well, there is a question of definitions. So some of the laws that are passing now have definitions of words that are different from how these things are understood in medicine. So as an example, the Texas abortion ban declares that pregnancy begins with fertilization. So when a sperm and egg meet uh, in medicine, pregnancy is defined as beginning after that fertilized egg divides and grows and implants into the uterus. So that's one uh, definition that kind of raises some questions for IVF. Um, another thing is that in a lot of laws, there's this line, quote, an unborn child means a human fetus or embryo in any stage of gestation from fertilization until birth. So by that definition, if you have unused embryos that were created for IVF, that's an unborn child. But how this is going to play out is kind of up in the air, according to Liz Sepper, who is a professor of law at the University of Texas in Austin. It's a fundamentalist movement that takes some of Catholic theology and combines it with some of the evangelical Christian tradition and politics. And conservative Catholics are opposed to fertility treatments to IVF, but that has not been a target for evangelical Christians um, who are supportive of IVF in order to procreate. She said that it's hard to predict the consequences because it seems like the anti-abortion movement itself isn't united on this point. Okay, one more question. This one is from Megan Voss of Carborough, North Carolina. You know, we talk a lot about women's birth control, but what about the men? What birth control options are there for men and how can they help us? Dr. Brandy, she says, surely there have been innovations. Have there been? I really wish that I had better news to share about the new innovations in male birth control. Um, unfortunately, there hasn't been a lot of drive for men to use birth control. As far as current things that are in the works, there are several clinical trials uh, investigating different types of birth control for men, things like pills to injections to other types of procedures. Unfortunately, it's going to take a while for those options to be available on the market, probably several years. And so right now, vasectomy and condoms are the options that are available to men that want to help prevent pregnancy in their couple. Dr. Kristen Brandy is board chair for Physicians for Reproductive Health and NPR health policy correspondent Selena Simmons-Duff. And thank you both for helping us talk through these listener questions. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And next week, we'll have experts to answer your legal and political questions. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Checking business news. Gasoline prices are holding steady on this busy travel day. AAA Northeast says the statewide average for regular is now $4.73 a gallon. That's roughly the same as last week. However, diesel in Massachusetts is actually cheaper than it has been. It's now going for $6.26 a gallon. That's down nine cents from a week ago. It's five nineteen. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Emmanuel Music, a living laboratory for the works of J.S. Bach and pianist Simona Dinnerstein. Ryan Turner conducts Saturday at 7, emmanuelmusic.org. 
in sports. Sox are in the midst of their seven-game homestand. Tonight, they finish up the series with the Orioles. It'll be Rich Hill taking the mound at 7-10 at Fenway. Tyler Wells for Baltimore. The series is tied at two wins each. If the Sox win tonight, they'll have pulled off five consecutive series wins. The forecast is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Volante Farms in Needham, celebrating spring with their Crescent Ridge ice cream stand, now open year-round. Extended seasonal hours at volantefarms.com. And Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students get back on track through academics, executive functioning coaching, and yoga. Semesteroff.com. A warm evening and overnight about 70 degrees tonight as clouds roll in. Tomorrow should have a mild morning about 80 by 8 o'clock. By the afternoon, temperatures should take a dive to about 60. Sunshine pretty much all day long tomorrow. 88 degrees now in Boston. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. In Hollywood, Memorial Day weekend is traditionally the start of summer blockbuster season, or at least it was before the pandemic. Last summer, despite the best efforts of the Fast and Furious crew and Marvel's Black Widow, no no blocks were busted. But this year, Doctor Strange and Top Gun Maverick have primed the pump, and critic Bob Mondello says there are more where those came from. Somewhere in the Rockies, snow falling gently as we hear the pitter-pat of raptors in the woods. Blue, you had a baby. That's impossible. In Jurassic World Dominion... Hey, girl. You look just like your mother. Jurassic Park is long gone, and we share the whole planet with dinosaurs. As always, bad folks have designs on them, in this case on the baby. It's good that Chris Pratt still has a relationship with his mom. I promise you, I am going to get her back. That's a pledge Pratt takes seriously, and if Pratt is Jurassic World's raptor whisperer... I made a promise we would bring her home. You made a promise to a dinosaur. Yeah. In the Marvel Universe, he's become a Thor whisperer to a superhero who's suddenly all about peace and love. Remember what I told you. You ever feel lost? Just look into the eyes of the people that you love. Not me. What? Just listening. You can forgive the Viking god for being a bit distracted in Thor Love and Thunder. Jane? Turns out he's not the only one who can hurl a hammer. The old ex-girlfriend. What's it been like? Three, four years? <laughs> Eight years, seven months, and six days. Give or take. There are also two films in which adolescents suspect a superhero may be hiding in plain sight, Secret Headquarters and Samaritan, and the directors of the last two Avengers movies, the Russo brothers, are apparently hoping to start a different kind of franchise with their CIA thriller. In The Gray Man, Chris Evans is an assassin. Want to make an omelet? You got to kill some people. Who goes after assassin Ryan Gosling. You hurt? I mean, my ego's a little bruised. Gosling is the title's gray man, so guessing his ego will recover. Another assassin on assassin movie, Bullet Train, finds Brad Pitt determined to play nice, even though he's the only one of five hired killers on the super fast train who isn't armed. You stab me? We'll ruin your life the way you ruin mine. Dude, I don't even know you. If all this sounds a little frantic, rest assured there are gentler summer films. In the comedy Brian and Charles, Brian may occasionally want to kill the mechanical man he's constructed. A very, very cheeky robot. Cheeky. But you can tell he and Charles have a bond. Cheeky bot. Cheeky bot? 
cheeky bots it in the front ground. Stop saying front. Front, front, front. Other comedies include Honk for Jesus, Save Your Soul, set in a black Atlanta megachurch, and Easter Sunday, in which comedian Joe Coy shows how his Filipino family fuels his stand-up act. Joseph, are you coming for Easter? I don't know, Mom. I'm really busy. I just tested for this pilot. You're going to be a pilot? A network pilot for, like, a TV show. Ah, you're playing a pilot on the TV show. No, a lawyer. You could have been a lawyer if you only applied yourself. Also based on real life, The Phantom of the Open, the story of an ordinary guy who heard someone say on TV that you can do anything you set your mind to and resolved right then and there. I'm going to have a crack at the British Open. Golf? I never even played bloody golf before, Dad. Mind your language on the course. Also pursuing a seemingly unattainable dream, a widowed 1960s cleaning lady in Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris. Her dreams, a Christian Dior gown. Please let me escort you out. No, 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 hang on a minute. I saved every penny scrubbing floor so I can buy this frock. Excuse me, but it would be my honor to have you view the collection as my guest. Enter the boss. Who's that bloke? Looks the master himself, Monsieur Dior. He looks like my milkman. And another British widow decides to make up for a lifetime of sexual boredom in Good Luck to You, Leo Grand, by hiring a male escort. Being an ex-teacher, Nancy comes prepared. So I've made a list of things that I'd like to get through. Oh, I think we'll certainly make a significant dent in it. Good. That's good. Good. Nancy is played by Emma Thompson, Leo by Daryl McCormick. You will only be the second man I have ever had sex with. Oh, God. No, Nancy. This is crazy. Nancy. It's terrible. It's wrong. Nancy. Yes? Let's go to bed. Okay. Good luck to you, Leo Grand, was a hit at the Sundance Film Fest this year, as was the charmer Cha-Cha Real Smooth, about a 22-year-old whose life changes when his mom makes him take his little brother to a bat mitzvah. I can't believe college is over. You have a job now? Or? We're not allowed to talk about jobs at the bat mitzvah party. So you either don't have a job or you have a bad job? How much does a party starter get paid, I wonder? I have a bad job. Yeah. For those eagerly awaiting the third season of Bridgerton, there will be a Regency costume comedy at the multiplex that's every bit as diverse. It's called Mr. Malcolm's List. If we were to allow him to discover that you have a list and he does not meet the requirements on your list, that would be a perfect sort of... Poetic justice. Hollywood isn't all bright and upbeat in hot weather. In Crimes of the Future, David Cronenberg will visit a surgery-obsessed society where evolution's in a kind of overdrive. I don't like what's happening with the body. In particular, what's happening with my body. Which is why I keep cutting it up. While Cronenberg peers inward, Jordan Peele looks to present-day Hollywood... What's a bad miracle? ...and to the skies in his latest sci-fi horror epic. It's called... Nope. Yeah, nah, nah, nah. Nope would also work as a title for two culture clash dramas, The Forgiven, in which Rafe Fiennes wrongly thinks wealth and privilege can protect him after he accidentally kills a local teen in Morocco, and Where the Crawdads Sing, in which a girl who's grown up isolated in a North Carolina marsh finds herself on the other side of the economic divide. Even the genie-in-a-bottle fantasy 3,000 Years of Longing has its dark side. There's no story about wishing that his not a cautionary tale. But happily, there are also fantasies designed for families. Buzz Lightyear Mission Log, Stardate 3901. After a full year of being marooned, our first hyperspeed test flight is a go. Who are you talking to? Uh, no one. You were narrating again. I was not. Pixar's Lightyear is sort of Toy Story 5, and the Minions prequel, Rise of Gru, amounts to Despicable Me 5. This puny little child thinks he can be a villain. I am pretty despicable. 
and the animated DC League of Super Pets belongs to the Superman-Batman world, all of which makes the snail hero of Marcel the Shell with shoes on feel disarmingly fresh. My cousin fell asleep in a pocket, and that's why I don't like the saying everything comes out of the wash, because sometimes it doesn't, or sometimes it does, and they're just like a completely different person. Marcel the Shell with shoes on is what you might call an art house family film aimed at discerning audiences that might also appreciate, say, the documentary Bitter Brush about two Midwest cattle women. Maybe I'll just be so good at it, I'll become a millionaire by I'm going rich. Official competition about a pair of Spanish actors who have very different styles. Idiota! Ignorante! Neptune Frost, an Afrofuturist musical from Rwanda. Or the biopic Eiffel, about the guy who built that famous tower. But it's a biopic from Baz Luhrmann that has the industry abuzz this summer. He's a young singer from Memphis, Tennessee. Give him a warm hayride welcome. Mr. Elvis Presley! The once and future King will be played by Austin Butler, with Tom Hanks as his manager, Colonel Tom Parker. Get a haircut, buttercup! In that moment, I watched that skinny boy transform into a superhero. Well, you may go to college, you may go to school. Worth looking forward to, right? I'm Bob Mandela. This is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From Indeed, a hiring platform for helping businesses of all sizes attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one place. More at indeed.com slash NPR. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. I've been a public radio listener for over 40 years. My name is Nancy, and I donated my 2001 Volvo station wagon to public radio. It was really hard to say goodbye. I love Morning Edition and All Things Considered, and it was kind of a no-brainer to give the car to public radio. Learn more at wbur.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Sawyer Free Library 2025 Foundation, transforming Gloucester and the North Shore with the renovation and expansion of Cape Ann's oldest public library, a philanthropic mission to elevate a lifeline of services for all people. Gloucester's new net zero hub of equity, connection, and advancement. Learn more at sawyerfree2025.org. Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. Visitations and funerals for the 21 victims of the school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, start this week. Stella Chavez from member station KERA has more. Visitors have been stopping by two Uvalde funeral homes to remember Maiti Rodriguez and Amari Garza, both 10 years old when they were gunned down inside Robb Elementary. Marisol Davis grew up in Uvalde and says Maiti was her little cousin. She was just the sweetest little girl. I mean, always had a smile on her face. Um, she was a daddy's girl, and I loved the relationship that her and my cousin had. 
it was just beautiful. She was just such a sweet little girl, the kindest. Davis says she wants lawmakers to toughen gun laws, so it's not easy for someone to buy a weapon, especially like the assault rifle used in last week's shooting. I'm Stella Chavez in Uvalde. A French journalist has been killed in eastern Ukraine. Officials say he died near the city of Severodonetsk, which is under attack by Russian forces. NPR's Ryan Lucas has more from eastern Ukraine. The journalist has been identified as Frédéric Leclerc Imov. The 32-year-old worked for France's BFM TV. The channel says Leclerc Imov was killed while covering a humanitarian operation near the city of Severodonetsk. It says the armored vehicle he was traveling in was pierced by shrapnel from a Russian shell, killing him and wounding a colleague. Severodonetsk is the target of an ongoing Russian offensive and has been under intense bombardment for weeks. Residents say the humanitarian situation there is dire, with little food and no power, no water or gas. According to press advocacy groups, Leclerc Imov is at least the eighth journalist to be killed covering the war in Ukraine since Russia's invasion in February. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, the Donbass in eastern Ukraine. Wall Street closed today in observance of Memorial Day. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. It's a long ride home from vacation getaways on this Memorial Day. There is now a seven-mile backup exiting Cape Cod at the Sagamore Bridge. That's eased out a bit. There's still a one-mile delay, though, on the Bourne Bridge. Route 3 north is slow in Plymouth and again from Duxbury to Weymouth. On 95 southbound, traffic is slow for 17 miles now from York, Maine to Hampton, New Hampshire. The Mass Turnpike eastbound is clogged from Sturbridge to Charlton. Communities across the region held ceremonies and parades today to honor Americans who have died in military service. The USS Constitution observed the day with a traditional 21-minute gun salute in Boston Harbor. Stand by! Today, Boston Mayor Michelle Wu and Governor Charlie Baker spoke at a Puerto Rican Veterans Association Memorial Day event in the South End. In Worcester, there was a wreath-laying ceremony at the Korean War Memorial. A Rhode Island man accused of driving while he was high on drugs will be arraigned tomorrow morning in western Massachusetts. Prosecutors say Ryan O'Farrell of Westerly crossed the center lane on Route 10 in Northfield Sunday afternoon and crashed his SUV into a group of motorcyclists. Eight of the motorcyclists were hospitalized. Two are in critical condition. Farrell faces several charges, including operating under the influence of drugs and driving without a license. As the Boston Celtics prepare to compete in the NBA Finals for the first time since 2010, police are warning about the risk of purchasing counterfeit tickets. Boston police say fans should buy tickets from authorized ticket agencies and not from secondary resale sites. The best-of-seven championship series against the Golden State Warriors starts Thursday in San Francisco. It's 535. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Picasso, a modern way to buy and co-own a second home. Picasso brings buyers together, then manages the home. Listings at pacaso.com. And Back Bay Life Science Advisors data-driven strategy and investment banking services for global life science companies. BBLSA.com. Pretty beautiful this evening. Clouds roll in tonight. Temperatures pull back to about 70 for a low. And then for tomorrow, sunny and cooler, about 80 degrees in the morning and then pulling back to about 60 degrees by the afternoon. Sunshine all day long tomorrow. 88 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies. 
at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. In less than two weeks, Los Angeles voters will decide who will be their next mayor. L.A. is the second largest city in the country, so the stakes are high. And this race is heated. Longtime California politician and congresswoman Karen Bass and billionaire real estate developer Rick Caruso are the frontrunners in the nonpartisan primary. Fernando Guerra has been watching this election closely, and he is the director of Loyola Marymount Center for the Study of Los Angeles. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for being with us. So can you just set the scene for us? Like, what would you say is the legacy of the current mayor, Eric Garcetti? What will he leave behind for the next mayor of L.A. to pick up? Sure. I mean, Eric Garcetti is a longtime uh, politician, civic leader. His father was district attorney. He was on the city council, president of the city council, then elected mayor, and he's been mayor for the last nine years. Uh, Even though there are a lot of challenges, his approval rating is actually still pretty high in most of the polls. However, the challenge, of course, is homelessness, uh, increasing crime, and the cost of living, the quality of life, all those issues have come to the fore. And Eric Garcetti is a representative of the liberal democratic regime that has dominated LA politics uh, for the last 25 years or so. And Karen Bass is the heir apparent to that. Rick Caruso is the challenger to that whole regime as an outsider. And that sets up this insider-outsider competition for mayor of L.A. Yeah, let's talk about those two front runners, both Karen Bass and Rick Caruso. I mean, this is just a primary, but given the way Angelinos vote, it is very likely that one of them will end up as the next mayor. So let's start with Congresswoman Karen Bass. She's been in politics for decades. And like you say, she sort of represents the kind of liberal establishment Democrat that L.A. usually goes for, right? Absolutely. What is her platform like? I think her platform is to really maintain the values of L.A. voters and residents and the values of uh, liberal Democrats. I think uh, if you were to compare where L.A. voters and residents are to what she stands for, I think on the natural, about 80 percent would be very supportive of her. The question really is the moment. It's not the values, but the policies toward the immediate challenges that the voters are concerned with. And so the platform has to directly talk about homelessness and increasing crime. And of course, like typical Democrats, there's this, hey, it's nuanced. uh, There's a lot of elements to it and et cetera. And somehow that is not effective communication at this moment. And so most of her support is, I would say, legacy support that we trust and value what she stands for. So we're going to go with that. I mean, she's had a strong lead for a while now, but now she seems to be losing voters to Rick Caruso. Why is that? Like, what about his message is pulling over Bass supporters or or is her current weakness just the lack of clarity in her message or her platform? Yeah, two things. I wouldn't say that she's losing voters because they're both gaining voters. Uh, Rick Caruso's just gaining voters at a much greater clip. And the reason he's doing that is because the amount of money that he's spending, he spent over $25 million 
which of course is breaking all kinds of mm. uh, spending records in Los Angeles. Yeah. And we've not seen anything like that since Bloomberg running in New York. Uh, so he's dominated the airways, he's dominated the narrative, and he's focused on homelessness and public safety. And not really nuanced policies, but just saying, these are problems, I didn't cause them, and I can solve them. It's that simple of a message over and over, and people say, hey, he's right, these are problems. It's appealing, that's simplicity. Yeah. It's gonna solve yeah. everything, okay. Yeah. And so you've seen him increase tremendously in all the polls, catch up to Karen Bass, maybe pass her, but they're pretty close tied. Uh, there are 10 other candidates on the ballot, <laughs> yeah. you know, and so given that, a couple of strong ones as well, I don't think either one of them can get to the 50% that would end the race. Therefore, the top two would go into November. That is Fernando Guerra, a political science professor at Loyola Marymount University, where he is also the director of the Center for the Study of Los Angeles. Thank you very much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. A makeshift memorial at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, has grown since the murder of 19 children and two teachers last week. Mourners had been kept at a distance. They had to hand mementos to a police officer. But this week, they can finally walk up to the growing remembrance site. NPR's Claudia Grisales has more. As they walked away from the makeshift memorial at Robb Elementary School, some embraced, some staggered, many wiped away tears. Some who came from afar were touched by others they met. We said, can we, we're five hours away. That's retired firefighter Renee Lopez Jr. who has seen tragedy in his hometown. He and Adela Lopez drove in from the border town of Mission, Texas, making a 10 hour round trip drive in a day. But many people have come to so, honor Texas, our children. Us Texans are very touched. Adela Lopez is a high school teacher in Mission. Students are teacher are older, 9 to 12, but they're still children. And this can happen to us. So that's my fear for my, my next. We're already out for summer, so everyone's fine, but we don't know next year. The Lopez's met another couple, Dagmara Sturiak and Tom Yonletna who happened to be traveling in Texas from Austria and had to stop to honor those killed. In Europe, it doesn't happen. So always, if you hear about this tragedy, like if there is something like this, it's so heartbreaking. The line stood 100 deep for hours in the thick Texas heat, nearing triple digits. Many had traveled from all over the state. From San Antonio, a member from another Lopez family, Mother Andrea, also drove in with her partner, her three young children, a niece, nephew, and 21 silver balloons to place at the memorial. Andrea Lopez says she frantically searched different stores for the balloons. We had to go to like three different ones because they were out for the graduation ceremonies, but we finally called one and they had them made for us when we told them, you know, we're bringing them to Uvalde. They're like, we'll make it happen. Miriam and Inocencio Jimenez came from Laredo, two and a half hours away with their two children and their own mementos for the memorial, 21 little bears attached to hearts. Mother Miriam says in Spanish that the news was so sad for her two young sons and family. Mother Cecilia Cadena, surrounded by family, traveled to the memorial from Carrizo Springs. Cadena lived for a short time in Uvalde and remains close to a friend who lost two grandchildren in the shooting, Annabel Guadalupe Rodriguez and Jackie Cazares. We're here because, you know, we 
we just, you know, so heartbroken. Cadena is a first grade teacher who believes the teachers at Rob died protecting the children. We would have done the same thing as these teachers did. Step right in front. The couple from Mission, Texas, Renee and Adela Lopez, say another goal of theirs was to spend money in Uvalde. We can donate a bit of money, but uh, the money to help the first responders is uh, through their taxes. So, you know what? I'm going to need the restaurants and get a guy to gas. I'm going to stop at a shop here or there and just to support them that way. The makeshift memorial has grown dramatically with sympathy notes, roses, and other flowers. And the lines of mourners are also expected for many days to come. Claudia Grisales, NPR News, Uvalde. And you're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The severe drought that has brought the second biggest reservoir in the U.S. down to its lowest level ever is also now revealing lost treasures. Thousands of archaeological sites that were flooded when Lake Powell was filled in the 1960s. Melissa Sivany with member station KNAU in Flagstaff, Arizona reports. The San Juan River cuts a deep channel through stands of dead trees and bleached boulders. Until recently, this Red Rock River Valley was underwater. It's full of stone dwellings, some built more than a thousand years ago, and remnants of pottery and ancient trails that were flooded by Lake Powell. There have been some past managers at Glen Canyon that have just assumed that all archaeological sites that were inundated were destroyed. That's Kim Spur, an archaeologist with the Museum of Northern Arizona. And we decided to go look and see what we found. What they found surprised her. At least a quarter of the sites documented before the reservoir filled survived their submersion and are on dry land again. The goal of this project, the basic goal, was to get information so that we can recommend ways that the Park Service managers can preserve and protect these archaeological sites in the future. That begins with public education, says Navajo Nation anthropologist Eric Stanfield. From his pickup truck, he points to petroglyphs of human figures and stalks of corn, which have been marred by vandals. You know, if sites are um, kind of trampled on, graffiti is a huge problem out around the lake. Stanfield wants more attention on Glen Canyon's rich cultural heritage. Just to kind of re-inventory, take another big look at what is out here, so much has changed. Bill Leip was a young anthropology student who helped with the first inventory just before Lake Powell filled. Yeah, I couldn't even swim. You know, we, we had to uh, work. We worked two summers on the Colorado River out of motorboats and rafts. There was no requirement to study or save cultural sites doomed by a dam, but the National Park Service documented more than 2,000 of them. We all felt a sense of loss. This was a, a wonderful place. On the other hand, at that time, in the late 1950s, it was just uh, assumed that, at least by guys in their 20s, that, you know, dams were going to be built. For Navajo resident Hank Stevens, it meant the loss of a sacred landscape. You know, let's say that we decided to uh, flood the Arlington Cemetery in D.C. That's kind of a situation that we have right here. Not far from the San Juan River, Stevens chooses two rounded river rocks to use in the preparation of medicinal herbs. And then from there we can Exchanging a pinch of corn pollen and a prayer. 
His Diné ancestors hunted, farmed, and gathered plants in Glen Canyon, activities that imbue the land with spiritual meaning. Anywhere you go here along the shorelines of San Juan River could be a, a sacred shrine. Stevens wants to restore cultural practices, including traditional farming, to the land exposed by drought. Now is uh, an opportunity for the Western world to open their minds and their heart to actually listen to the Native American people to maybe incorporate some type of uh, co-management. He says no one knows if the reservoir will rise again. For now, he sees a second chance. For NPR News, I'm Melissa Sivany. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, the Lincoln Memorial in Washington was dedicated 100 years ago. Up next, we'll look back at one of the most important cultural events to take place on its steps, where African-American singer Marian Anderson was allowed to sing after she'd been denied a stage elsewhere. That's just ahead. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, sponsor of Growing Healthy Futures with Greater Boston Food Bank. MathWorks.com slash GBFB. You're part of the WBUR community, and that is why you're invited to our next virtual community advisory board meeting. It's Tuesday, June 7th at 8.30 a.m. Get details at wbur.org slash open meetings. In the forecast, a warm evening and overnight, about 70 degrees for a low tonight. For tomorrow, sunny skies starting off around 80 degrees, but then pulling back to about 60 degrees by the afternoon. It is 88 degrees now in the Boston area at 549. WBUR supporters include Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. Time keeps moving forward, and the world desperately wants to move past this pandemic. But my mother, she's still gone. This journey has changed me for worse, unfortunately. And I feel like a lot of folks don't understand why still a year out that I am grieving my mother's death. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. 100 years ago today, also on Memorial Day weekend, the Lincoln Memorial was dedicated here in Washington, D.C. Since then, it has been the site of some of the most iconic gatherings in the city's history, including one of the most important musical events on April 9th, 1939, as Hitler's troops advanced in Europe and the Great Depression took its toll on the United States, a massive crowd gathered at the Lincoln Memorial to see just two performers, a piano player and a singer. NPR special correspondent Susan Stamberg first brought us this story back in 2014. The singer was 42 years old, respected in Europe and the U.S., but had never faced such an enormous audience, 75,000 people. She was terrified. Later she wrote, I could not run away from this situation. If I had anything to offer, I would have to do so now. So, 
At 5 p.m. in the April dusk, Marian Anderson stepped onto a stage built over the steps of the Lincoln Memorial and began to sing. These first notes show no sign of nerves, and the choice of music, that opening song, is remarkable given the circumstances. The NBC Blue Network announcer explained the unusual venue this way. Marian Anderson is singing this public concert at the Lincoln Memorial because she was unable to get an auditorium to accommodate the tremendous audience that wished to hear her. Not exactly. In fact, they had tried to book Constitution Hall for the concert. A large audience was expected, and that was the biggest auditorium in town. But the Daughters of the American Revolution owned Constitution Hall, and Anderson biographer Alan Kyler says that was a problem. They refused to allow her the use of the hall because she was black, and there was a white artist clause only printed in every contract issued by the DAR. Like the nation's capital, Constitution Hall was segregated then. Black audiences could sit in a small section of the balcony and did when a few black performers appeared in earlier years. But after one such singer refused to perform in a segregated auditorium, the DAR ruled that only whites could appear on their stage. And so, that Easter Sunday of 1939, contralto Marion Anderson faced an immense, desegregated crowd outdoors on the mall. She began with a deeply patriotic song. When she got to the third line of that well-known tune, Ms. Anderson made a change. The lyric was, of thee I sing, but she chose to sing, of thee we sing. quiet, humble person, Marian Anderson often used we when speaking about herself. Years after the concert, she explained why. We cannot live alone, and the thing that made this moment possible for you and for me has been brought about by many people whom we will never know. But her change of lyric, from I to we, can be heard as an embrace, implying community and group responsibility. Never a civil rights activist, Anderson believed prejudice would disappear if she simply performed and behaved with dignity. But dignity came at a price throughout her 25-minute Lincoln Memorial concert. Biographer Kyler says she appeared frightened before every song, yet the perfect notes kept coming. I think it's because she was able to close her eyes and shut out what she saw in front of her. And simply the music took over. She could shut out the crowd, shut out the three months of brouhaha and controversy that led up to this day, during which the concert and contention were all of the newspapers. Eyes closed, enveloped in song, she soared above it all to erase discord with her art. On that stage, before a bank of microphones, the Lincoln statue looming behind her, iconic photographs reveal Anderson as a regal figure that cloudy, blustery day. Although the sun did break out as she began to sing, she wrapped her fur coat around her against the April wind. 
That mink coat is preserved at the Anacostia Community Museum in Washington. Museum assistant Ali Martin pulls out a large archival box from cold storage. Oh, look, it's got a beautiful lining embroidered with gold threads and a lovely sort of paisley pattern. Mary Anderson's initials are embroidered on the inside. Museum historian Gail Lowe says whether wrapped in that coat or gowned for a concert hall, Marian Anderson touched everyone who heard her. Her voice was a very rich contralto, and so those kinds of low notes get into one and can resonate and, and sort of match one's heartbeat. A voice that comes around once in a hundred years, conductor Arturo Toscanini said. Many hands helped bring that voice to the Lincoln Memorial. Howard University, the NAACP, and the Roosevelt administration made it happen. Eleanor Roosevelt resigned from the DAR when they turned Anderson away, but took no further public action. President Franklin Roosevelt had his Interior Secretary Harold Ickes handle logistics. In the shadow of the great emancipator, Ickes introduced Anderson. In this great auditorium under the sky, all of us are free. Genius, like justice, is blind, Ickes went on. And genius had touched Marian Anderson. I'm the Lincoln Memorial Concert made Marian Anderson an international celebrity. It overshadowed the rest of her long life as a performer. She was 96 when she died in 1993. Eventually, she did sing at Constitution Hall. The DAR had apologized and changed its rules. Marian Anderson rarely spoke of that historic April day, and biographer Alan Kyler says when she did, there was no rancor. You never heard in her voice a single tone of meanness, bitterness, blame. They were simply lacking. Hmm. There's something saintly in that, you know. There is something saintly in that. Something deeply human and good. I'm Susan Stamberg, NPR News, Washington. Just beautiful. You're listening to All Things Considered. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Easy Cater, committed to solving food for today's workplaces, from sales meetings to employee lunches, online ordering from more than 80,000 restaurants, corporate food solutions at easycater.com. From Paycom, a tool for HR and payroll, designed for productivity, allowing employees to perform their HR and payroll tasks in a single software. Learn more at paycom.com radio. And from CrowdStrike, their cloud-native platform is designed to protect businesses from cyber attacks, ransomware, and data theft at home, at the office, and everywhere in between. 
More at crowdstrike.com NPR. 86 degrees in Boston should fall only to 70 overnight tonight. Lots of clouds around. Tomorrow, sunny, about 80 to start, then falling to 60. Tonight and through the wee hours of tomorrow, we may get to see a great meteor shower with an emphasis on May. About 1 a.m., the Earth will pass through the debris of the broken comet SW3. NASA says if the fragments are traveling fast enough, they should make it all the way to our atmosphere. If not, it'll be a bust. We just have to hope the clouds don't spoil the show. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Walnut Hill School for the Arts, championing creativity. Arts and academics for grades 9 to 12 apply for 2022-23. WalnutHillArts.org. I'm Weekend Edition host Sharon Brody, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. You can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. It's been less than a year since 13 service members were killed in Kabul during the final days of the U.S. pullout. This Memorial Day, a mother remembers her son, one of the Marines who died that day. She spends hours each week at his grave. Losing a child is something that the pain itself is something that I can't even explain. This is All Things Considered. That story is coming up. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also, Democrats fear time is running out to pass climate legislation before midterm elections. And non-dairy ice cream is more popular and more accessible now than ever. There's been an amazing explosion in availability. Uh, I think there's been something like a 300% increase just since 2018. And it doesn't hurt that vegan ice cream can be tasty. Some recommendations coming up. It's 6.01. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Fighting and raging in eastern Donbass region as Russia pushes an offensive there. Many residents have fled, but some still remain in towns and cities, even as the fighting intensifies. NPR's Ryan Lucas reports from eastern Ukraine. Russian forces continue to attack Severodonetsk, the only major city in the Luhansk region, still under Ukrainian control. Russian troops are trying to cut the last open roads into the city, which residents say is already largely destroyed and has no gas, no power, and no water. In the town of Bakhmut to the south, which is just kilometers from the front line, 60-year-old Claudia Drach says the sound of artillery and rockets is constant. She says she's tired of these booms. She can't even sleep. The sound of the shelling is all day and all night, she says, as outgoing artillery can be heard in the distance. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Bakhmut. Ukraine. On this Memorial Day, President Biden joined in a wreath-laying ceremony at Arlington National Cemetery. Meanwhile, in Uvalde, Texas, today the first memorial services are being held after an 18-year-old gunman last Tuesday killed 19 children and two teachers at Robb Elementary School. On Sunday, the president and the first lazy visited the school, families of the victims and survivors. Here's Cleo Grisales is there and says residents still have many questions about the shooting and its aftermath. In terms of reactions of what we heard, we did hear chants. We did hear people in a crowd shouting to the president to do something. He responded, mm. we will. And so there's a lot of impatience here, and people are trying to get that message to the president and others to try and address how this happened. The Justice Department has announced plans to investigate the law enforcement response to the shooting. 
The National Rifle Association has re-elected its longtime chief executive officer and executive vice president, Wayne LaPierre, at its annual board meeting in Houston. came despite an ongoing lawsuit against LaPierre alleging his misuse of NRA funds. As Houston Public Media's Andrew Snyder explains. LaPierre faced a challenge for his leadership from retired Army Lieutenant Colonel Alan West, the former Florida congressman and former head of the Texas Republican Party. West received only one vote. The vote re-electing LaPierre came following a motion of confidence in the NRA's chief executive on Saturday, which also confirmed LaPierre in office by an overwhelming majority. New York State Attorney General Letitia James is seeking to have LaPierre removed from office, alleging he has misspent tens of millions of dollars in organization funds. James had also sought to dismantle the NRA as part of the ongoing legal action, but a judge ruled in March such an action would infringe the First Amendment rights of NRA members. I'm Andrew Schneider in Houston. U.S. financial markets are closed for the Memorial Day holiday. Those stocks were higher in Europe. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Drivers are plodding through long delays on area highways this Memorial Day. Route 95 southbound is slow for 17 miles from York, Maine to Hampton, New Hampshire. On Cape Cod, there's a six-mile backup now approaching the Sagamore Bridge. There is no delay at all on the Bourne Bridge. Mass Turnpike eastbound is slow from Sturbridge to Charlton. Air travel has been a headache nationwide, with more than 1,500 flights canceled due to weather and COVID staffing issues. At Logan Airport, 18 flights have been canceled today, more than 120 delayed. Staffing shortages are forcing the Steamship Authority to cancel one quarter of tonight's ferry trips between Martha's Vineyard and Cape Cod. The authority says because a crew member called in sick and overall staffing is already tight, it canceled five trips between Vineyard Haven and Woods Hole. It says it's rebooking passengers on other ferries. Several state parks and beaches across Massachusetts were closed off today to new visitors after they quickly reached full capacity. The Department of Conservation and Recreation says Walden Pond, Douglas State Forest, Ashland State Park, and Katichuit State Park reached capacity by midday. Stephanie Cooper is the department's acting commissioner. It's, it's, not, it's not unusual. Places like Lake Kachichuit and, and Walden Pond do pretty regularly reach capacity when we're you know, in the height of the recreation season, which we've, we've now just, just ushered in this weekend. Cooper says you can check the new dashboard on the Conservation and Recreation Department's website before you leave home to see if your favorite park is open or closed. On this Memorial Day, the state has a new way to honor those who have died in military service. The Registry of Motor Vehicles has begun to offer a Medal of Liberty license plate. It features the image of a purple ribbon with a heart-shaped medal that has a gold star in the center. You can get the plate for your vehicle if you had a family member in the military who died in action or as a result of combat wounds. The state's registrar is Colleen Ogilvie. It's very important to honor the people who have protected our country in the past. And through those brave individuals, we continue to um, have the freedoms we have today. The Medal of Liberty license plate is free of charge. A warm evening and overnight, about 70 degrees tonight. Tomorrow, we should have a mild morning, about 80 degrees by 8 a.m. Then by the afternoon, temperatures should take a dive to about 60. Sunshine tomorrow. Then Wednesday, clouds, maybe showers in the afternoon, inching up to the mid-60s. Should be right around the mid-60s to 70 as the week continues. 86 degrees now in the Boston area at 607. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by EBSCO, committed to providing researchers with reliable, relevant research information with full-text databases, including Academic Search Ultimate and Business Source Ultimate. Learn more at ebsco.com. 
from NPR News, it's All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. It is Memorial Day, when the U.S. remembers those who have died in military service. Just after noon today was the traditional wreath-laying ceremony at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier at Arlington National Cemetery. Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, gave a brief speech. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin then spoke, and so did the Commander-in-Chief, President Joe Biden. America's beloved daughters and sons who dared all, risked all, and gave all to preserve and defend an idea unlike any other in human history. The idea of the United States of America. Biden also acknowledged the sacrifice of military families and loved ones whose grief he described as a, quote, black hole in the center of your chest. Today is the first Memorial Day in 20 years that the U.S. is not at war in Afghanistan, but it's been less than a year since 13 service members were killed in Kabul during the final days of the U.S. evacuation. As the U.S. takes a national holiday, KPBS reporter Steve Walsh spoke with the mother of one of the Marines who died that day. Next week, I'll change the flowers out to the red, white, and blue. They just didn't have blue right now. A week before Memorial Day, I met with Cheryl Rex at Forest Lawn Cemetery in Orange County. We stand at the grave of her son, 20-year-old Lance Corporal Dylan Marola. I asked what she was doing last Memorial Day. Memorial Day is usually my birthday or my birthday weekend, so it's going to be even harder every year, not only for what we represent for Memorial Day, but... You can't really celebrate after something like this. She comes through her son's grave five to six times a week, decorating the grave to fit the holiday. His marker is covered with angels, marine flags, and red, white, and blue streamers to fit Memorial Day. Sometimes I can sit here for six hours, eight hours. It just depends. It's all I have left. <laughs> I sit with him, talk with him. Marola was killed on August 26th of last year, along with 12 other U.S. troops. Most were Marines from the 2nd Battalion, 1st Marines stationed at Camp Pendleton. Their unit arrived 11 days earlier from Jordan, one of several rushed to Kabul in the last days of the American presence in Afghanistan. The things that, that they saw out there, the kids, the babies, the women, um, even grown men coming running to them, asking for their help and to save them. They were guarding the entrance to the airport as thousands of Afghans pressed their way into the Abbey Gate entrance, hoping to get on the last American flights out of Kabul. An ISIS-K bomb exploded, killing the service members and at least 170 Afghans. I pretty much knew that morning. Um, I woke up to the alert on my phone that there had been an explosion in Afghanistan, and that whole day was just horrible waiting not knowing three of the marines were from southern california people lined the streets as their caskets arrived for funerals in september my whole life is completely different i know i'll never be the same person i was dylan wanted to be a marine nearly all of his young life 
He joined right out of high school. Losing a child is something that nobody could ever, and the pain itself is something that I can't even explain. Her mother, Dylan's grandmother, Clarinda Matsuoka, says they've become even closer over the last year. She cries a lot more. <laughs> we didn't cry before. Um, it's hard to say because she's always been a very strong mom. Our whole family is pretty strong. Marines from her son's unit visit regularly from Pendleton. The ones who don't come to the house leave coins at the gravesite. Dimes mean they serve together. Quarters mean they were with Dylan in Kabul. She has a jar filled with coins that she keeps in her room. The Marines come up. Um, they've been a big support to myself, my other children, and my family. That's basically it. I don't really go out in public much <laughs> right now. Um, family. Family is everything to us. Rex's oldest son, Brandon, told her in January that at 24, he was joining the Marines. He's scheduled to graduate boot camp in San Diego, roughly one year after his brother died in Kabul. For NPR News, I'm Steve Walsh. Democrats control the House, Senate, and White House. Still, efforts to pass legislation fulfilling President Biden's climate change goals have stalled. That leaves a big gap between those goals and the amount of climate warming greenhouse gases the U.S. is on track to emit. NPR's Laura Benshoff reports. When legislation dubbed the Build Back Better Act died in Congress last year, the Biden administration's climate agenda suffered a big setback. But at a rally outside the Capitol building recently, Minnesota Senator Tina Smith spoke for many Democrats. We must act now. We need to address the root cause, and we must demonstrate our capacity to do real climate action. The Biden administration's goal to reduce U.S. emissions by 50 percent this decade is in line with what scientists say is necessary to avert the worst effects of climate change. Reached by phone later, Smith said many Democrats are hoping a party-line bill could deliver on that promise before they potentially lose their House majority in the midterms. I've not seen any serious Republican interest in that, which leads me to think that um, it's going to be quite difficult to get 10 Republicans, which is what it would take, to be able to do something in a bipartisan way. Meanwhile, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin has been talking to Republicans, and so far no climate deal has been announced. That's a problem because researchers predict that the U.S. needs to do more quickly if it's going to slash emissions sufficiently in the next eight years. A big infrastructure bill passed last year included some climate change elements, but John Larson with the Rhodium Group says it's not enough. It kind of makes other things possible, but it doesn't necessarily drive a lot of emission reductions on its own. That's because it funds things like power lines and developing new technologies, not implementing ones that already exist. A Rhodium Group study last year found that without a massive investment in renewable energy, like the more than half-trillion-dollar climate portion of the Build Back Better Act, 2030 climate goals are in jeopardy. Larson says the main investment tool is tax credits. When in solar tax credits, it's the carbon capture tax credits, it's clean fuels tax credits, all that stuff really adds up by 2030 to a meaningfully different and cleaner energy system. Such credits are where Democrats hope they can find consensus now, in particular ones that last for 10 years and can be used for any kind of zero emissions energy source. That last part is important because it's attractive to a lot of different kinds of energy providers and their allies in Congress. 
Lisa Jacobson, president of the Business Council for Sustainable Energy, says renewable power needs them to keep up momentum. You know, the market's stalling, and we, we need to provide some clarity and predictability, and this would be very helpful. At the same time, fossil fuel companies could use that same money for carbon capture, technology which reduces emissions from fuel-burning power plants. Without legislation, the Biden administration will be left to try to remake U.S. climate policy through regulations. But those rules are more vulnerable to legal challenges and political shifts. Here's John Larson again. And if there is a new president that doesn't care about climate change in office in 2024, a lot of the things we just talked about might not be relevant anymore. Faced with that uncertainty, he says the coming months could be the last best opportunity to make federal climate change policy that fits the scale of the crisis itself. Laura Benshoff, NPR News. Funeral services for the 19 students and two teachers killed in Uvalde, Texas last week start today. NPR's Karen Zamora reports on the preparations underway. It's quiet outside the flower patch except for the hum of air conditioning units cooling the building. There are signs on the front entrance and the side door that say no media allowed because a flood of journalists has made it difficult for the florists to do their job. They are working around the clock to create beautiful wreaths and arrangements made of colorful peonies, hydrangeas, and lilies. Oh goodness, our usual operations are... (laughs) We usually have like three to four people max. We've probably got about 12 people in there right now designing behind the scenes that y'all don't see. After hesitating a moment, owner Kelly Baker takes us inside the two-story building. To keep up with the demand, Baker says flower designers from all over have come to help. Oh, hi, I'm sorry, I was looking at the ladies, I didn't even see you. The back room is crammed but organized. There are walls of ribbons, greenery laid on on workstations, and in one of those stations, florist Leslie Garza of San Antonio is adding the finishing touches on a pink and white standing spray arrangement. Oh, if I don't talk, it takes me about 25 minutes if I'm talking. It could take me a longer time. Veronica Berger is the owner of Ars Flower Shop in Lacoste, Texas. She drove an hour to help. And florists are the only ones who know how to get through this. uh, Nobody understands the dedication it takes to be a florist. I mean, it is 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 very very hard work. work. But it's very... Fulfilling. It is very fulfilling. That we get to do something for these families. That we knew exactly what to do when this came. When, When this tragedy happened, we knew exactly what we needed to be doing. Like many people here, owner Kelly Baker knew some of the victims. A high school classmate came in the other day, placing an order of flowers for her child's funeral. Their baby's favorite was sunflowers. As we we start making these arrangements, we're just going to make sure and save sunflowers for this baby so that, you know, her family gets just a tiny bit of what she wanted or what she would have wanted for her service. Services begin tonight with the rosary and visitation for 10-year-olds Amari Joe Garza and Maite Juliana Rodriguez. And in the next few weeks, the community will put 17 other students and their two teachers to rest. Karen Zamora, NPR News, Uvalde, Texas. And this is All Things Considered. This is 90.9 WBUR coming up on All Things Considered. The enduring power of the psychological thriller Gone Girl, 10 years after it was published. Also, ice cream, you scream, we all scream for vegan ice cream? Well, maybe. It's 618. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Landmark College for students who learn differently. With online dual enrollment courses where high school students earn college credits. 
More at landmark.edu slash online. And the Boston Pops at Symphony Hall. Enjoy film nights, Broadway stars, a gospel performance, and a celebration of Duke Ellington and Billy Strayhorn. BostonPops.org. Wall Street markets were closed today for the Memorial Day holiday. The art scene in the Berkshire should be bustling this summertime. Theaters and museums have fuller schedules than they have in the past two years. The Economic Development Agency, One Berkshire, says indoor arts programs were canceled in 2020 because of COVID. They rebounded to about 50 percent last year. And the agency's senior vice president of tourism and marketing, Lindsay Schmidt, says things are looking even better this year. Knowing that performing arts has taken a hit, it was really important for my team collectively to make sure that we are letting people know that it's time to come back and hear those voices on stage again and put some of your dollars there to make sure that these theaters are here for a much longer time. Schmidt recommends visitors call venues ahead of time to confirm the hours of operation. The forecast is next. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Historic New England, launching its spring and summer season with a region-wide open house on June 4th. Explore more than 30 historic sites and more than 1,000 acres of outdoor space. Details at historicnewengland.org. Funded in part by the Massachusetts Office of Travel and Tourism. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. 86 degrees still in the Boston area. That should be the high of the week, falling to about 70 overnight tonight. Lots of clouds around. Tomorrow should reach nearly 80 during the morning commute, but then head downward, falling to 60 for the majority of the day. Sunny skies through the day tomorrow. This is WBUR at 621. WBUR supporters include Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center. When it comes to cancer, it matters where you start and when you start. Don't wait. Visit youhaveus.org. From NPR News, it's All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly, and we're going to spend the next few minutes talking about a book that opens with these lines, When I think of my wife, I always think of her head. The shape of it, to begin with. The very first time I saw her, it was the back of the head I saw, and there was something lovely about it, the angles of it, like a shiny, hard corn kernel or a riverbed fossil. Recognize that? If so, you might have been like me, like millions of readers actually, back in the summer of 2012, who stayed up all night reading Gone Girl. Gillian Flynn's novel sold a bazillion copies, it upended the publishing industry, in an essay for Esquire, Maris Kreisman argues that to this day, Gone Girl casts a long shadow over the psychological thriller market. Kreisman also asks, 10 years on, does it hold up? Maris Kreisman, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. All right, for those who haven't read the book or who haven't read it in 10 years, very quick reminder of the characters in the plot. Yeah, it's a husband and wife, kind of a he said, she said. They each alternate chapters. And... Um, the wife goes missing. Why was it so revolutionary? I just remember halfway through the book, you get to this audacious plot twist that kind of blows up everything that came before. And it was shocking. The success of Gone Girl kind of kicked off this boom in books that were kind of uh, for fans of Gone Girl. And that kind of became a shorthand for a very specific kind of psychological thriller in which perhaps the heroine is more of an anti-heroine, uh, which is very exciting, who is 
likely to be unreliable and readers are primed to try to decide what is really happening. The anti-heroine meaning you may not like her, but yes, you can't stop turning the pages to figure out what happens here. You are totally invested in her. Absolutely. She is not a perfect victim, nor is she a perfect perpetrator, if, if that's what the case may be. So here we are a decade on. How long had it been since you read Gone Girl? Had it been a decade since you'd picked it up? It had been more than a decade. And I had, um, of course, seen the movie as well that came out in 2014. But I was nervous going back. <laughs> and I'm happy to tell you that it really does hold up on so many different levels. The plotting and the pacing are spectacular. The writing in EW, Stephen King would say that Flynn's prose is Franzen-like. Jonathan Franzen, the novelist, yeah. High praise. Any bits that don't hold up? I think the only thing, and it's maybe one of the most famous speeches from the book, doesn't hold up, and that's the cool girl theory. This is Amy's theory. Yeah, explain it. Yes. She thinks that women have to constantly pretend to be more laid back and broy than they actually are in order to impress men. And yes, that's still true. But wow, does that feeling feel quaint in a world after grab them by the, you know what, and mm -hmm. the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh. And so I, I think there's, I, I hope Amy is just the beginning. There, there's so much more room for well-rounded anti-heroines in commercial literature. I will look forward to reading those. And I'm happy to report it had been a decade since I picked it up so long that I'd forgotten all the big, <laughs> the big audacious <laughs> plot twist in the middle of the book. And I started rereading over the weekend and was hooked once again, staying up into the wee hours. Absolutely. We've been speaking with Maris Kreisman. Her essay for Esquire magazine is headlined, The Legacy of Gone Girl. Thank you. Thank you. Today, of course, is Memorial Day, the unofficial start of summer, which makes it the perfect time to try ice cream, maybe even a plant-based ice cream. They're more popular than ever, and if you don't believe me, just peek in the freezer section of your store. Try to count all the ice cream options that do not use cow's milk. The results might surprise you. There's been an amazing explosion in availability of vegan ice cream. I think the market reports say that there's been something like a 300% increase just since 2018. That's Brittany Martin, editor of the web-based publication Vegetarian Times. Martin says there are a few factors behind the boom. More people are vegans and vegetarians. There are also more folks who try non-dairy options because of health or environmental concerns. And it doesn't hurt that the industry is making a tastier product these days. I think people used to think that vegan ice cream is some kind of lesser than or like not as delicious, not as creamy any of those kind of things, but between people just being more creative in the products they're making and some of the technology innovations, the quality is really there. 
Innovations that yield new flavors, textures, and ultimately a product that seems much more familiar. Alicia Kennedy is a food writer in San Juan, Puerto Rico. She says that years ago, there were only a few little known brands of vegan ice cream. Now, brands people have been eating their entire lives have entered the game. You're going to see Ben and Jerry's non-dairy on the aisles of like a Walgreens or, you know, any old supermarket. So it's been a real shift from like, there's this aisle at the natural grocer that has these options that all kind of taste like coconut to now it's just a super variety from the artisanal level to the mass produced level. These days, ice creams are made with a bunch of different plant milks, including cashew, oat, hemp, and others. And if you need help figuring out which direction to go, our guests have got you covered. Here's Brittany Martin again. If you want a super great pint of ice cream in your grocery store freezer section, I would seek out the Craig's vegan ice cream. They have a Melrose mint chip that is my very favorite. It is also, I believe, Lizzo's favorite brand of vegan ice cream. So a little bit of an endorsement for that brand there. Indeed. And for Kennedy? I have to admit to a real weakness going back decades for Ben and Jerry's Cherry Garcia. And so now that there's non-dairy Cherry Garcia, I do reach for it quite a bit. Both Kennedy and Martin recognize it is unlikely that plant-based ice cream will replace the real thing anytime soon. But Martin says it's more about having options available for everybody. And saying this is not weird, you're not missing out on anything, it's just as great and it's going to fill all of those same cravings you have. So we challenge you with a very difficult task this summer. Try as many kinds of ice cream as you possibly can. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is WBUR. Rich Hill does the pitching honors at Fenway tonight against Tyler Wells for Baltimore. 7-10 start time for the Sox in this final game of the series. If Boston wins tonight, it'll have pulled off five consecutive series wins. Pretty warm tonight, about 70 degrees. Could have a mild morning tomorrow, around 80. Then by afternoon, temperatures should fall to just about 60. Sunshine tomorrow. Then for Wednesday, clouds, maybe some showers in the afternoon, inching to the mid-60s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an educational and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive function coaching, yoga, and exercise are designed to help develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Summer semester starts June 6th, semesteroff.com. And Red Fire Farm. Organic summer farm shares with veggies, fruit, cheese, and more. Delivery or pickup in Cambridge, Somerville, J.P., Newton, and more. RedFireFarm.com.